0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by Squarespace, Casper Mattresses, The Great Courses
1: Plus, and Blue Apron. And we're back. Nice. Mm -hmm. Now that's a new angle. Well, no, it's just a a variety of a thousand different ways to inflect, and we're back. All right.
0: Well, it's reasonable to say that in another year or so, Astonishing Legends may be an actual going concern with a modest income, 2.5 employees, and a chance to thrive. You can help us get there by telling everyone you know about our show, and if they don't know what a podcast is, teach them how to find us. Independent shows like ours rely more on word of mouth than you can imagine.
1: That we do. And we can't thank you enough for listening regularly and more importantly, supporting our sponsors when you
0: can. If things continue as they've been going, it's possible we might be able to keep doing this
1: indefinitely. Oh God, don't say that. It's all I can do to keep sitting here. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and
1: this is Forrest Burgess. I had the uncomfortable feeling as they studied me that they knew every thought in my mind, everything I'd ever done and a vast amount about me that I didn't even know myself. Intuitively, I sensed that I stood in a kind of spiritual nakedness before them. Orfeo Angelucci, The Secret of the Saucers.
0: Join us tonight as we take a look at Orfeo Angelucci's astonishing tale of contact with extraterrestrials. All right, first thing I want to say is welcome back to Richard Haddam.
2: Is my mic on? Your
1: mic is on finally. <laughs> he actually Thank never God. left. He's been in the studio just hibernating. This still. is my chance
2: to get a word out. <laughs> yes. Help me someone. Yeah. I haven't left in weeks. <laughs>
1: Very um, good. Well, we're glad to have you back. Yes, and last glad last to be week's,
2: back. Last
0: week's show was a big hit. We had a lot of positive feedback on it. We we had Rich on. He adapted the Mothman Prophecies, John Keel's book into a movie. We talked about that and also just his general belief systems which insulted several people. but Many no we right. had to cut out, yeah, <laughs> due to legal and uh
1: theological well, as I'm reasons. I'm
2: already afraid I'm overstaying my welcome. I mean, <laughs> t- t- two episodes in a row might be one too many. We're going to find out real soon. <laughs> it
1: solves more of a logistical problem for us, so we're fine with it. Yeah. yeah. It's oh, helping okay. us wow. out. That's Thanks. all
2: about you guys.
1: Right, so tonight we're going to talk about...
0: Orfeo Angelucci, who was a person I had never even heard of until Rich came into the studio for the last episode.
1: Yeah. You know, he goes into all those names that in UFO lore, the more popular ones, George Adamski. The only right. thing I noticed is that
2: there's a lot of Georges in the original <laughs> yeah. 50s Contact. George Vance Hassel, a lot of the contactees. Exactly.
1: Yeah. What's the reason for that? But no, he was one of the names that stands out more, of course, because of its Italian American heritage. But it's not one of the more popular names. But this story is fantastical on so many levels.
2: Well, and I love it because the reason it stuck out to me is that he's a local boy. I mean, there's always something about these stories that captures your imagination and and sort of makes you think, wow, somewhere in some weird town somewhere, like Point Pleasant, (laughs) something weird happened once. This thing happened in Burbank,
1: Oh, yeah. not only yeah. that, which I was not aware of, and I'm I'm really so glad you made this book aware to us again and brought it up because a lot of this, even the more strange and weird stuff happened within blocks of my residence. By the yeah. way, it I, is in my neighborhood. Having
0: where this been happened. to both Burbank and Point Pleasant, I'm yeah. going to choose Burbank as the stranger town between
2: <laughs> 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 Well, yeah, well, but, but it's, yeah. again, you read these stories that's always Loch Ness. It's yeah, always yeah. the, you know, the deep forest in oh, Oregon. Of course, right. You never think oh, this happens right in my neighborhood, but I was born in Burbank.
1: Exactly. Here's the point. And a lot of people- Nobody's uh, born in Burbank.
2: (laughs) I I would Saint Joseph's Hospital. Yeah, Yeah,
1: you remember uh, Gary Owens was the announcer on Rowan and Martin's Laughing, and he always start the show live from beautiful downtown Burbank. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's not much of a downtown. There is now. It's It's been built up. I don't know if it's beautiful either. Well, well it's it's it looking, it's hey, looking better, Where do you get right? stop, uh, stop! I'm dissing the your hometown. Well, I,
2: well okay, well, let's be clear. I don't live in Burbank. Yeah. Although I do <laughs> you know some people to from Toluca Lake. Yeah. <laughs> find people. There's no lake.
0: Well, John, well, no, there you, is. Right. You just can't yeah. see it, right? It's a secret
2: lake. Yeah. Well, wow. Okay. Now we're really getting into yeah. what this subject That's at Johnny hand Carson is. land. It's yeah. there, but you can't see it. Yeah. But-
0: <laughs> well, I've looked on the map. I've been over there looking for it. My wife and I, in a fit of boredom, drove through to the- Where is the lake in Toluca Lake? And it seems to me that there are some very expensive houses that back up to this lake, but you can't see it from the street. Oh. And you can't get anywhere near it. Unless you go into the golf club, which you have to have a membership through Right, or
2: that's like that. the old uh, Bob Hope estate is right there. Bob yes. Hope, yes. Johnny Carson yeah. stomping grounds yeah.
1: Yeah. during his day. But Burbank is an industrial and showbiz town. So there's lots of large studio space with large warehouse buildings where you can shoot stuff and build airplanes. Yeah, it was that kind of slash industrial and media town, and right. it always has
2: been. You know, my cousins used to live there. I'm, of the three of us, the only one who grew up here. So ah. it was just another town, just, a you know, 15 minutes away from where I lived in Monterey Park. Right. And right. again, it never occurred to me that anything of a paranormal nature could possibly have ever taken place there. And then to discover that it's so close, and it's near places that I've driven past, Thousands of times in my life that now take on this weird, mysterious haze because I know that Orfeo was right there having some of the weirdest experiences any human being can ever have.
1: Absolutely, and I have to thank you for that because now (laughs) his weirdest experiences and points of contact, shall we say, are just blocks from my house now. Yeah, Yeah,
0: you're right up the street. Well, let's get down to business here. We need to let our listeners know a little bit about Orfeo and why we're talking about him. We're also going to talk a little bit about the time period. I did want to point out that Orfeo's
2: first name, to me, sounds a little bit like UFO, Ufeo, but no, nothing. Orpheus is the poet, and his last name, Angelucci, means angel of light. Ah. So this is bizarrely appropriate for what we're going to be talking about. All
0: right. So there's a lot in a name there. Light is a major theme here. Here's the other interesting thing about Orfeo. He actually met the love of his life when he was relatively young at 24. Her name was Mabel Borgianini. Yeah, pretty close. Right. Which, yeah, (laughs) if I'm sorry if I'm slaughtering that name. But the interesting thing about her is that she is actually descended from the famous Borgia family, from Italy, which here's a little bit about them from the Encyclopedia of the Renaissance. A Spanish-Italian family of great power and influence during the late 15th and 16th centuries, which has earned an unsavory reputation for immorality, treachery, nepotism, and greed. So there was a lot. They had uh, popes, cardinals, and they notoriously
1: took care of their own. Kind of like an evil Medici thing going there. But you know the series with Jeremy Irons? Yes, that's right, the Borgias. Yeah. There's no indication that Mabel was evil, by the way. (laughs) No, no, she's very nice and sweet. Very much like a a 1950s mother and uh, just a decent wife.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because when Rich saw this outline, he was like, why are you even mentioning this? Which I guess is a valid point, but I have this overall theory of coming around again and family lines and this. I mean, that family had power for hundreds of years. And I just have one of these things that where I'm thinking, you know, there's connections to as kids or well, begat to kids uh, and uh,
1: reincarnation is another big theme here. This, yeah. this story about Orfeo is all about grand. Universal themes. Yes. I'm so glad you you brought it to
2: our attention. And you don't do a show like this if you're not drawing connections.
1: Yes, that's
0: right. So I'm drawing some connections to the Borgias for no apparent reason. (laughs) Now, I also want to mention, before we get down to his actual primary incident that we really want to discuss or we want to lead off with, we're just going to set the stage here. What's going on in the United States anyway at this time in 1952? It was the year, believe it or not, only just a month before this incident, Singing in the Rain came out, Mm. which if you haven't seen that, it's a great movie, very enjoyable, and uh, holds up even to this day. I love it. My son loves it. Well, it was the main inspiration and very closely studied for La La Land. Well, there you go. Everything old is new again. There you go. And in addition to that, but there was something else going on that was pretty ugly at the time, and that's McCarthyism. And if you haven't had your history class yet, kids, that was the Red Scare when Senator Joseph McCarthy took it upon himself to root out every communist sympathizer in the United States. He actually took particular aim at Hollywood, which is something that sort of continues to this day. Wound up in blacklisting and these... Horrible hearings with the House Un-American Activities Committee, and uh, it was pretty nasty business. And this was just about in the middle of that period. and and
1: communism features a little bit in this story as well.
0: That's right. That's why I'm throwing that in there. And then just six months after what happened to Orofeo, the U.S. would successfully detonate its first hydrogen bomb. And then shortly after that, at Christmas, a 12-year-old named Jimmy Boyd would sell three million copies of his hit, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. So it was a
2: time of great darkness.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, in certain respects. Anyway, so that just kind of sets the stage for what's going on. Also at the time in Burbank and the areas where Orfeo was working was a lot more sparsely populated than it is now and much less developed and rural, the areas where he would go from his work to get home. It was very rural area.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's industrial, you know, suburban kind of spread out area, but had a big role to play in the war effort, developing and manufacturing the P-38 Lightning, which you can go see a model of that at the Burbank Airport.
2: Right. It's a densely populated city now. But at the time, it was clearly a place where you could build an enormous facility for building right. aircraft but and still be was very
1: close to los angeles a major hub right i reports. mean it's only a
2: few miles outside of downtown but at that time you know the 50s doesn't sound like that long ago it was 65 years ago yeah. when orfeo had his experiences which we will get to soon <laughs> yeah we, 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 we keep teasing we do experiences that now. but what the <laughs> heck it's a densely populated area now but when you think back at the time It was a little bit more rural. Yes. Yes. One of the companies that was based
0: here in this area was Lockheed. And this was before it became Lockheed Martin, which it is now, I believe, currently. It was just Lockheed. And he went to work at this company in metal fabrication. And then after six weeks in metal fabrication, he was moved over to the plastics division, where he worked with two other guys making nose cones, for the plane you just mentioned,
1: yeah, actually the radomes, which yes, are the, radomes. which are the plastic covering that goes over the radar detectors on fighter jets. Yes.
2: So in a way, he was a real common man.
1: Yeah, yeah he was it's a, a blue collar job, yeah, working guy.
2: And yet, in another way, he was a very uncommon man, as he details his upbringing and his illness as a child. Yes. So again, if you know anything about people who have had strange. Psychical experiences, paranormal experiences, contact experiences. This is a common theme, being ill as a child. He was diagnosed with a, quote, neurovascular disturbance, (laughs) which sounds vague, but don't worry, later on it was updated to... A constitutional inadequacy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: just like, so now no, we really nailed that one you. down. Yeah. yeah, we got it. Very classic beginning to a lot of great people's stories, especially inventors, which he kind of was, and home scientists, Edison, Faraday, all these guys that were kind of self-taught. What it does though, being sickly as a child, it gives you a lot of time at home in bed to study, which is what he did. He got his hands right. on every science book he could and studied as much as he could, and built up his knowledge that way.
2: And while he never became a professional scientist in any real way, here he ends up working at Lockheed, and it's the 50s, and ultimately something parascientific kind of happens to him.
0: Absolutely. All right, Rich, so I'm going to let you share with our listeners the story of what we would call the preeminent encounter that Orfeo had, which was May 23rd. 12.30 in the morning, 1952. He's just getting off work from Lockheed and heading home.
2: Right. It was um, presaged by physical symptoms. Okay. Now, this is a guy who moved to California because he had an innate fear of electrical storms, okay? And that fear was also connected to the way electrical storms made him feel physically. So it's a little bit of which came first, the chicken or the egg, the bad physical feeling or the fear But he ends up in California and he's working his night shift and he starts having this weird feeling, sort of a tingling sensation, the back of his neck and down his arms. Basically, he starts feeling really bad and he decides, I just got to go home. So he signs out of his shift, jumps in his car and starts driving Southeast on victory. Again, if you're familiar with this, it's now a street that runs right along the five freeway. He's heading South. Yes, Okay. past Krispy Kreme, eventually. (laughs) Yeah, I always bring that up. Krispy Kreme wasn't there then. Neither was the Baskin Robbins (laughs) Training Center, but it's all there now. Sweet Freaks, you've found your mecca. So he just starts tearing down the road. Now, I mean, imagine, you know, you've all driven home feeling sick at some point. He feels almost like he's going to collapse. Yeah. He's driving. His hearing starts to get a little muffled. His visual sense even seems to... Almost like you're getting a migraine or something. He's having severe physical symptoms.
1: Well, he's no stranger to this because as a kid, he would have severe physical pain, especially around electrical storms, which he thought could be psychosomatic. He just had a tremendous fear, but he was no stranger to, to... Nerve pain as a child,
2: exactly growing up yeah. exactly, and, so there, and, here's a know, huge yeah.
1: attack of this, yeah, yeah,
2: he's having some attack. The attacks have always been totally physical. now something more than physical is about to happen because as he's traveling south on victory and coming up to Alameda, and again, it's so hilarious to hear these intersections <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, you know, where something amazing happens. And if you go to the corner and we may, are there pictures uh, that are going to be up on the uh, website? Yeah. We'll have at least
0: one very uninteresting picture of this very uninteresting. Intersection. I, it,
2: it, it could not be a more mundane, which is what makes me love it. Right. And it's also close to places I've worked. I mean, when I've worked for Disney and on various TV shows, there's office buildings, right, just a couple blocks from there. Anyway. So as he approaches the intersection of. Victory and Alameda, he sees something hovering over the intersection. He variously describes it as a red light. It's oval in shape. It is a little foggy, but it seems to be a craft. And it's at the corner of Victory and Alameda when he really sees it. And it catches his attention in a big way. He's continuing south on Victory now. So is the craft. So whether he's chasing it Or really just trying to go home and it happens to be kind of leading him in that direction.
1: Yeah, it's maintaining his distance, the same distance from him.
2: Because ultimately it is, he is driving in the direction of his home, which is ultimately revealed to be Glendale Boulevard in the Atwater Village area. Of Los Angeles. Yeah. Another freaky thing, yeah. If you want to move out here, it's pretty hipster now. Oh, it is now. Yes, it is now. People are seeing all kinds of things out in that water village. (laughs) You'll pass about 19 dispensaries on your way. (laughs) So he sees this fuzzy, luminous, oval-shaped red light. He's following it. He follows it all the way down. He follows it down to where victory turns into Riverside Drive. And he describes this route in the book. And I want to describe it here because I want you to drive this route. Any of you UFO tourists, and I know you're out there, when you're done with Point Pleasant, come to Burbank, (laughs) drive the route. Um, yeah. you'll go past we Pico's did it yesterday barbecue. yeah uh, Yeah. we we, no, okay. we should talk
0: about that yeah. absolutely okay yeah.
2: I drove it on Tuesday and then we all drove it yesterday yes just to follow through just to get a feeling for what he was doing but of course it's difficult because it's 65 years later and you realize this was probably just a frontage road I mean things are barely happening there now things were really not happening there then. they're
1: not happening but it is a focal point and a uh, nexus of a lot of cultural heritage that's where the hot rod movement started yeah in the early 50s that's true and and a lot of those shops are still there. George Barris, who designed the Batmobile. All these things are in Burbank. So it's actually given birth to a lot of cultural stuff that we recognize today.
2: Well, when you think about it, where else are you going to go hot riding <laughs> besides a place with big, open, more or less empty roads, right? Yeah, I mean, You're not going to go to the most densely populated downtown LA. You're going to be a little bit out in the sticks right. where you can really get some uh, juice out of your... Out of rod. your jalopy. I wanted to use some terminology, but... <laughs> Rat, I'm Ron. not the car guy. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> no, there's farmland
1: right outside of LA, which a lot of people don't realize either. They don't have uh, much concept. There's a lot of geographical compression, but to get out to Temecula during this age, it's all farmland. There's cows. There's orchards. There's everything, and that's of course the history of LA too. Is that a lot of it? Orange orchards
0: where we are right now was a giant walnut yeah. orchard. Yeah. 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 I mean, everything
2: was, and not that long ago. I mean, yeah, yeah, the majority of the valley were orange groves. Yeah. Anyway, so you're driving down this road. He's driving down this road. He's headed straight for Griffith Park. Griffith Park is this enormous park. It's kind of like a big hill in, in the middle of Los Angeles. It's
1: a bit mountainous, if not the largest, but maybe uh, one of the largest wild preserve that's yeah. in a city. Tremendous park, tons of trails, uh, you not go like, horseback riding. Right. Not like
2: Central Park. It's not right. landscaped. It's it's not, not flat. It, it, it was not designed for human use. It was basically just sort of set co- aside set aside for coyotes and raccoons to r- run around. And uh,
1: <laughs> It was donated by Mr. Griffith for recreational purposes. Kind of a do as what you will with it, but it was pretty wild. Yeah. Very Horseback hilly, riding, that yeah, kind of thing. Right.
2: So it's this big, it's a wild area and back then even more wild. And now Orfeo is headed right for it at a point where today you would pass over the five freeway. But I want to point out very clearly the five freeway did not exist in that area in 1952 or 53. By 1956, it did, but it's important to know this now. Yeah. Kind of like at the beginning of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. If you don't understand that Marley is dead, the story (laughs) will make no sense. So what you must understand now is there was no five freeway in that area. Okay. There was an LA River, but no five freeway. So he's now passing over the LA River. He's passing over the area where the five freeway now is, and he's coming to a T stop at a mountain, which is Griffith Park he is in the middle of nowhere. And he makes a left-hand turn onto what was then called Forest Lawn Drive because the Forest Lawn Cemetery was there. Yeah, a
1: big famous expanse, a lot of celebrities buried there, but a beautiful expanse of of cemetery property
2: right next to this highway where he's driving. Exactly. So just picture a dark highway and a lot of dead people. (laughs) Now picture Orfeo Angelucci driving his car following a UFO. Yeah, yes. This is the greatest. (laughs) We (laughs) live in a great area in a great time. Well, yeah, yeah, you don't
1: expect anything like this. You you live here and there's so much hustle and bustle going on. You don't expect anything like this to happen within a city like this.
2: Not at all. So now it's about one in the morning. Now he's really locked into this thing. I mean, he can see it. So he makes his left-hand turn onto Forest Lawn Drive, which is now Zoo Drive, because now we're coming up to where the LA Zoo is, which is on the outskirts of Griffith Park. But again, you must know, it was not built until 1966. Ah. So no zoo. Right. He makes a left. He starts following it. Now we're in no man's land. Even now when you drive this road, there's not a lot going on. There's our golf course and there's some park area, but there's no buildings. There's no fast food restaurants. Yeah. You're, you're on the outskirts of a wilderness area. Yeah, there's a lot of brush, a lot of hills. Exactly. And 65 years ago, it's got to be really creepy with a lot of little roads. So yesterday... The three of us drove this route and tried to figure out exactly where he was. And you can't, because now that the zoo is there, all the roads roads have have been been moved. They've yeah. all been moved and re landscaped. And so we stopped where we think it must have happened. Yeah. But we didn't have any Geiger counters or anything to <laughs> <No>. really <laughs> pick up any residual. Yeah. Uh, we PMF did find waves. a clue,
0: though. Or no, wait, that was a piece of a broke, a lock
1: somebody had a, a broken could. lock. Broken lock. Why, we
2: don't there? know what that was. <laughs> no, but,
1: he, but he's barely keeping it together. He's so tired, exhausted, Sick. Uh, feeling prickly and numb, and his extremities are failing him that he's just now basically
2: all he can focus. Focus on is this glowing amber light. And so he's following it. And at a certain point, and he's slowing way down, I guess, because then he sees something really weird happen. This red light from it come two green lights that descend onto the road in front of him. So he comes to a stop. The red mothership, if you will, takes off to the west. The two green glowing orbs are now hovering in this road right in front of him. So he parks, he gets out of the car. You got a picture of a sweaty guy, something out of the Twilight Zone. (laughs) Right. It was like looking terrified. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. So he's exhausted anyway, but like his head is spinning now.
2: And he says he is terrified. And of course you would be. So he's staring at these two green glowing lights. And then something appears between the two lights that he describes as looking like a TV screen. Okay, and they did have TV back then. So this is (laughs) before the L.A. Zoo, but after television, (laughs) right? And a face appears, and then another face appears. Really beautiful semi-human faces, right? Right, and what he describes is kind of a television-like screen that forms between
1: these two glowing, luminescent orbs, these disks, shimmering green
2: disks. He also describes it as
0: three-dimensional, doesn't he? It's not
1: flat
2: to him. It's well it's it's like a flat screen but with three D. Yeah. It's like a three D screen. You can look into it. Yeah. Yeah. There's depth to it. Yes. Yeah. And the great thing is these two faces that are looking out are like looking up and around, almost like they're in a window.
1: They're in a window. Like the beginning
2: of the Brady Bunch. Like the (laughs) Well, they're looking at each other. (laughs) Wow, well, yeah. you know that took a turn well no
1: you know what it'd be like is a suddenly alice and the whole brady bunch are looking through the screen at you watching yes. them that's yes. what it was like
2: not looking at each other like no no, no. Hey, yeah you know, like, well, hey, what are you these doing hot it? girls who are now our sisters yeah exactly right. right it well, wasn't that, that, that was not yeah
1: it. no the way but. orfeo describes it though they're looking out of the screen like they're observing the landscape around him yeah so it's really a direct communication
2: so now he's there And they're in communication and Forrest always talks about the rules. (laughs) And the thing you always hear is, and this was the true of a Woody Derenberger when he encountered Indrid Cold, suddenly you're having a conversation, but nobody's talking. It's kind of like (laughs) right now, (laughs) conversation, but no one's saying anything. Orfeo calls it cosmic law, as we'll get into. So there are rules that are coming up. Yeah. And so now he's communicating and he's terrified And here's another really interesting thing that I love about UFO encounters from the 50s. Their first words to him are, do not be afraid, Orfeo. We are friends. Yes. So they recognize that he's afraid and they try to calm him down. Indrid Cole did the same thing. Yes. His first words to Woody Derenberger were, do not be afraid, but then he asked Woody's name. These guys already know Orfeo's name. Indrid Cole didn't know Woody's name. But in any case, they're trying to introduce themselves in a way that will calm their person down. Now, I do want to bring up Whitley Strieber right now. Oh, please do. Because he's from the 80s. Yeah. He's not a contactee. He's an abductee. (laughs) Right.
1: Right.
0: There's a difference, right? Total difference. Oh, I'll
2: tell you the difference. Okay. But he was terrified. When he had his uh, experience, he was terrified, didn't know where he was, was extremely scared, saw some really gnarly looking aliens that made him even more scared. And their first words to Whitley were, how can we help you stop screaming?
1: (laughs) Boy, have I heard that a few times. Again, why? Or said it. (laughs) The idea though is that's really unpleasant. And what I want to stress here is that Orfeo's encounter initially is unpleasant due to the physical effects of this type of communication, not that these people were unpleasant themselves. And the
2: difference, like you said, they're seeking him out directly. It's almost like whatever energy is being used by this craft, by these people, by these intelligences... It's got an electronic and electric basis to it. Right, an electromagnetic factor that's that is physically affecting him. Right. And it used to affect him during electric storms in the east, and now it's affecting him here. So he's having like a and not many people who have UFO encounters sort of start out having these extreme physical symptoms. Maybe afterwards, right. maybe a little during, but not so much leading up to. Anyway. He's having it and he's having it bad, and they want to calm him down. And he thinks to himself God, I'm really thirsty. I could really use a drink.
0: Yeah. Because yeah, that's what I would think. Well, yeah. that's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and they say, "Oh, well, look to your right, and on the fender of his car is this golden chalice, this goblet, filled with something." Yeah. He doesn't ask questions, he just starts drinking it. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> well, I would too. And they say, "Drink from the golden cup." And he does, and he describes it as the most delicious beverage he's ever had. Oh, yes. This is like on the level of a sidecar at the Raymond, <laughs> uh, right. which I think you and I yes. have discovered is the most delicious beverage yes. <laughs> also, in the universe. Also very delicious. Certainly in the beginning. But, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
1: But you'll start to feel like Orfeo did at the beginning of this
2: encounter after a while. Oh, they only get better. And I think it's then that he describes having that feeling that you quoted at the beginning of the show, where it's almost as if these intelligences know him, know everything about him, know him better than he knows himself. Exactly.
1: And of course, they're much more advanced. This beverage rejuvenates him. He feels energetic now. He feels refreshed. He's being, And I I desperately want to know what this tastes like. What's the most delicious taste ever?
2: Well, and there's a long tradition, apparently, of people eating or drinking offerings from otherworldly beings. Yes. The fairy folk are often, you know, providing some weird beverage to the people who encounter (laughs) them in the woods. In fact, an entire book has been written on the subject by Joshua Cutchins. It's called The Trojan Feast. And you should definitely read this book. It only came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And it takes every UFO encounter, every otherworldly encounter, and just breaks it down based on food. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Love the idea. You that know, sounds what, amazing. Yeah. It's like the intergalactic caterers and what are they bringing to eat? And <laughs> that same guy just wrote a new book called The Brimstone Deceit, which is all about weird odors experienced during ghost encounters, Sasquatch encounters, and UFO encounters. How can you get a whole book out of that? Oh you my God, everything. a thick, big book. Yeah. And it turns out the number one smell with UFOs, what do you think? Uh, like sulfurous or elect- or uh, static. smell. 100%. Ozone. It is sulfur, and ozone. Wow. Huh. Wow. It's almost like you read the book. Well, this is you're really, <laughs> well, no, here's really stole my moment there
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, no, that was I often smell that, but it could be just us after lunch. <laughs> so but the, the idea though is that this story is an archetypical story in a lot of ways, in that it's also the holy grail. Drinketh from the cup, it will restore thou. You know, it's like
2: oh. it's very allegorical. And if you like allegories, icons and metaphors. <laughs> yeah. Pull up a chair. Yeah. Orfeo's got him. Yeah. Oh yes he does. So he has this insane encounter. They talk to him. I think they imply they're, they're going to see him again. I think they they yes, do so say yes, yes. right. We will see you again. Well, like Derenberger, we'll see you in time or Indrid Cold. I know, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, nothing's ever going to be as cool as I will see Indrid, you in time, but, <laughs> right. but And that was
0: Vadik, by the way. Yes.
2: But in the movie, Ingrid Cold Indrid says, it. says it. Ingrid Cold says it. So right. now that's pretty much who Yeah, says yeah, it. yeah, that's
0: who written,
1: who yeah, says Rich it, yeah. has written it into the lexicon <laughs> of movie lore.
2: I know, well I was curious to see if you had
0: made that up and it's actually quoted from the original encounter with another one of the odd characters from Keel's book. Vadik who I think we talked about a little bit, but not as much when we did our series on it, but yeah. that was the guy that said, I'll see you in time. And that was an actual real thing, which creeped me out more than if you had written it. That was one of those many things about that book. that. We're right. In.
1: But as a story here, what it does is it sets up for more drama later. If he said like, okay, right, see ya, that's it. We'll never see you again in, in, our, in your lifetime. Then you'd forget about it. But it's like, when are they going to come again?
2: Yeah. Where's it going to be? Well, he jumps back in his car. They've already left. Okay. So they take off. He doesn't know what the hell has happened.
1: No, he's enthralled, still extremely tired and and shaky, but utterly refreshed, of course, because you just had a, an out-of-this-world
2: encounter. And at the same time, terrified. Yeah. Because he recognizes that this is insane. At least at this point, he does. Yeah. Later he becomes rather sanguine about the whole thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. and- <laughs> well, he you get used to
1: stuff. Humans can get used to anything.
2: Apparently. But what we want to
1: point out here is that he's couching this story very carefully. And that he, at the beginning, says, look, I realize that I could just be going nuts. This could all be a huge illusion, a fantasy, a phantasm, if you will. So he's being cautious about initially trying to categorize this.
0: Were you able to actually walk down to the spot where Orfeo met up with
1: Neptune slash Astra? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's only about a 30-minute walk from my place. And I took a bunch of pictures, which will be up on the website page for this episode. We're going to have a bunch of other shots, too,
0: that we took when we were retracing the route with Rich and our photographer friend Case. So uh, while you were down there, you didn't happen to see... No,
1: I didn't see any extraterrestrials or glowing igloo UFOs. But Squarespace makes posting photos so easy, it feels like advanced alien technology. And one thing I especially appreciate is that Squarespace has a photo editor built right into the picture gallery, so you can adjust the lighting or crop, take out red eye, or resize your photos right in the upload window. Well, that's the idea with Squarespace. They make creating your own website so easy
0: and automated, it's actually kind of fun. And if you like tinkering with HTML markup, you can do that too, so you have a lot of control. But all the time wasters like patches and upgrades are taken care of for you behind the scenes. And if you ever get stuck, Squarespace's award-winning,
1: 24-7 customer support is there to keep you moving. that leaves you with more time to create. Whether you have a new home business, or you want to show off your photos or artwork, or you're looking for a new job, you don't mail people paper. The impressive way to get people's attention is you direct them to your hip and stylish website. Don't let someone else scoop your idea or take the
0: domain name you've been wanting. Now's the time to make your next move with a beautiful, easy-to-create website that has the name you want. Just use our offer code, LEGENDS,
1: to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name. It's time to get your ideas out to the world and get 10% off a website subscription or domain purchase in the process. Just by going to Squarespace dot com and entering the offer code legends that's l-e-g-e-n-d-s at checkout squarespace make your next move this is lisa from tennessee if i'm not chasing chickens and i'm not working on my truck
0: i'm probably listening to astonishing legends let's get back to the show
2: so in the middle of this encounter they drop a big bombshell on orfeo They tell him it's not the first time they've encountered each other and now he's really freaked out. Yes. But they (laughs) mention an event that occurred in his life that was a seminal event six years earlier. Now, remember how we were talking about how he was interested in science and he was sort of an armchair scientist carrying out experiments of his own, right? Yeah, yeah. So six years earlier, back in New Jersey, he was experimenting with mold spores And he wanted to see, I guess, the effect of altitude or the upper stratosphere might have on the growth of these mold spores. So he took a bunch of them. and Apparently, it took months to sort of get this experiment ready to go.
0: He had grown them in different stages. He had like really young ones and middle developed ones and then older spores and... Yeah, so he's kind of right. attaching them all to the balloon. Yeah,
1: he's a self-taught scientist in a way. but Very smart guy. I don't want to impress upon people. this is He's no bumpkin.
2: And so he had attached these spores to these giant balloons. And he's going to let them up into the upper atmosphere. But there were... I guess certain things he had to do first, but something went wrong and the balloons took off. It's like kind early. Of
0: the, they took off early. They took off early at kind of like the end of
2: The Wizard of Oz. Yes. When the guy suddenly starts going away in the balloon and leaving Dorothy behind. It's yeah. the it's the balloon that goes up too soon. I'm so. still not
0: clear on how he was planning to recover data from the balloons, but I don't know how any scientist would Maybe does that's that, what he in- was
2: trying to set up. He was putting on ballast or something. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. balloons take off and According to him, months of work have now been wasted. And so he and his wife and some friends and colleagues are standing there watching these balloons go into the sky. This high, is a very sad
0: sky. scene,
1: by the way.
2: This really makes me sad. very
0: sad for it because he's been putting this – he's <laughs> growing these molds <laughs> right.
1: forever. The balloon got away and from And the
0: balloons this. all – you know, when we've got this guy who's been sickly his whole life, doing his experiments, you know, his whole – he's invited all his friends and family over to watch – this moment when he's like, I'm going to check out what happens to these spores and they just take off without him.
2: Yeah. And as they're watching them go into the sky, something approaches the balloons. It looks like an airplane. Then they look at it more and they all recognize that it's not an airplane. I'm going to let you know right now, this is 1946 and this will become important in a second. It's not an airplane. It's a circular craft, something that none of them have ever seen before. So being 1946, they kind of assume that it's just a new kind of aircraft. You know, it's right after the war, beginning of the next war, the Cold War. And they're thinking, hmm, I've never seen anything like that before. The craft circles the balloons like a helicopter might, except there's no tail to it. There's no uh, propeller section, as far as they can tell. So it's sort of a weird coda on a sad, strange day. Yeah, But a big event, and one that they, he and his wife and his friends all remember, well, that's who they were. Same guys. Same guys. The guys in Griffith Park now, who are on the weird TV screen, say, we were the people in that craft. We saw you releasing those spores connected to the balloons into the atmosphere, and we came by to check them out, and we checked you out, and we have been following you ever since.
0: Keeping in mind this first event was in Trenton, New Jersey six years earlier, and now we're in Burbank, California. So it's been going on for quite some time, and it's a big change for him in his life too, because now he's been out in California, he's working in Lockheed, he's moved on with his life, but for this whole six years, they apparently have been watching him.
2: And it's strange that it recalls this seminal event in his life, the one that he thought was going to bring him fame or at least bring him recognition as someone who knows something about science. Yeah, there was scientific, genuine interest in his experiments. And not to cast a shadow of doubt on anything that Orfeo says, although you almost have to, because (laughs) you have to ask yourself, but connecting this event, the earlier event that he thought would be his claim to fame, with another event, which ultimately does become his claim to a certain kind of fame, there are those who would say... He found a way to get his name out there one way or another. Oh, sure. Anyway, they call out the event. He's totally stunned and a little freaked out that they've been, you know, following him around without his knowledge. (laughs) And then they take off. Yeah. And he goes home and he's freaked out and he's freaked out for a couple of weeks. And then like any normal human being, he just starts to forget about it and go on with his life. And what exactly did they say to him when they were there in Burbank?
1: Well, being the initial message, they realize that he's freaking out, literally, because, you know, as he says, he was trembling violently from weakness and cold perspiration, that he was on the point of blacking out. And they can see him, right? It's a two-way communication, telepathically, mostly. I mean, he's hearing voices in his head, other sensations he's getting, words. Again, like Woody and... uh, Yeah, he said it's it's an interpretation that he's getting, but he's getting the message very clearly, but is being very kind to him. And what the voice said was that, we know you're confused, we get that. Don't worry, though, that you're going to understand all of this later on. And here's a great phrase that they say, the road will open, Orfeo. And that phrase gets repeated throughout this story. What does he mean by that? What road am I on? What journey am I on? And he says to himself, "I, I don't get this. Instead, a thought flashed through my head, like everyone does. Why me? Why have they contacted me? I'm just an aircraft worker, a nobody. And the voice answers, we see the individuals of Earth as each one really is, Orfeo, not as perceived by the limited senses of man. The people of your planet have been under observation for centuries, but we have only recently been resurveyed. Every point of progress in your society is registered with us. We know you as you do not know yourselves. Every man, woman, and child is recorded in vital statistics by means of our recording crystal discs. Each of you is infinitely more important to us than to your fellow Earthlings because you are not aware of the true mystery of your being. From among you, we singled out three individuals who from the standpoint of our higher vibrational perception, are best fitted for establishing contact, all three are simple, humble, and presently unknown persons. Of the other two, one is living in Rome and the other in India. But for our first contact with the people of Earth, Orpheo, we have chosen you. We feel a deep sense of brotherhood toward Earth's inhabitants because of an ancient kinship of our planet with Earth. In you, we can look far back in time and recreate certain aspects of our former world, With deep compassion and understanding, we have watched your world going through its own growing pains. We ask that you look upon us simply as older brothers. And so with that, the ethereal beings, as Orpheo comes to call them, are kind of explaining what the deal is here. We're establishing first contact, and we've chosen you. And he's like, well, why? I'm just trying to get home. I don't feel well.
2: But there's a reason for all this. And we never find out who the people in Rome or India are. Yeah. And to this day, I don't know. I mean, I suppose we could look well, through I'm the sure contact they, literature they've Written books from from Italy in Italian and India. India. Yeah, but we don't we don't know who they are. They don't come back into the story. I wish they would. I'd love for the three of them to get together <laughs> yeah. and share their stories. Well, this brings
0: up a whole host of questions for me. And, you know, I don't necessarily want to go down the road of debunking right now, but I do want to point out a couple of things. One, the Lockheed factory, the plastics division, was famous for how bad it smelled which would indicate that plastics were probably being melted, molded, whatever it is that you would do to make plastic into a radome. So there's some question for me as to whether or not he had inhaled a ton of melted plastic (laughs) and was feeling sick and had to check out. And on his way home, he started hallucinating from fume... Inhalation, yeah. But
1: hundreds of people worked there. Well, only there, three would,
0: worked in this department.
1: Right, but it's not just one small room. You understand, yeah. like the plastics area, you're talking about large machinery, extrusion and injection molding and all this kind true. of stuff. True, true. Wouldn't that happen to a bunch of other people? Yes, that you could say that. I could see people going like, well, he's just loopy from the fumes. Well, people work there all their lives. True. I agree
2: with Forrest. Orfeo was crazy way before this. <laughs> he
1: was, like he was, <laughs> but he
0: was chosen. But yeah, we, here's my other question. This is a question about the book in general the specificity of the quotes and the dialogue and that quote that you just read for us. It's like, how does he know? And that's something I found throughout the book. He's quoting all kinds of things that they said, dialogue he had with his wife. It's like- Oh, well,
1: he's naming coworkers. These are real people. You can look them up.
0: No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is- it's a very specific. And then Mabel said these exact words to me. The aliens said these exact words. That's a whole lot of words. Now I don't know. If you're looping having a conversation on the side of the road, and then you write a book four years later, how do you remember that they we feel a deep sense of brotherhood toward Earth's inhabitants? You know, that's a question I have for both well, of you. Guys. Here, okay,
1: quickly because it's on the top of my tongue brain tip yeah. here. Tongue brain. <laughs> yeah, the top the tip of my tongue, the top of my brain. What <laughs> would you choose your metaphor? The point is that you wonder, like, how can you remember all this stuff? Well, the purpose of this contact is for him not giving anything away here, but to relay the greater, grand, universal message of interplanetary, interdimensional brotherhood. This is an important message we've chosen him to do. It's not like, hey, jot this down, Orfeo. I know a little sketchy here and you're kind of nervous, but like, yeah, yeah, remember these important facts. There's a psychic, spiritual, soul connection here, so if you can accomplish all this stuff, you're going to imprint this message onto this guy's brain and help him along. And that's what you read throughout the story is that he's being helped along to accomplish some of these goals. So yeah, I wonder about that. Well, how does he remember exactly what they said? Well, if you believe in any of this, there is a connection there where he's being guided. So the message comes out true and straight.
2: Look, all we can do in terms of comparing these sorts of, Encounters is to compare them to other encounters of these sure. sorts, and this is a very common thing. There was an interesting thing I read just a couple of days ago about uh, near-death experiences and the way those memories sort of get laid in where they are remembered as real events. So when they send the near-death experiencer into an MRI and ask them to talk about the near-death experience... The part of the brain that records real events lights up, not the part that lights up when you describe a dream or a fantasy or a projection of a future event. People who have these experiences rarely say, it was weird and foggy and I barely remember it. They say things like, suddenly things were clear. It was more real than my real life. It was like the fog lifted this is reality. This is where I want to be. Here's what happened. And they do tend to have really clear memories of what happened in these encounters. Oh, now, sure. I have no doubt that he was inventing words and sort of taking concepts that they were implanting into his head right. and then re-describing them as best he could. Look, even if he had a tape recorder with him, yeah. Yeah, he had to translate. This was a silent conversation going from mind to mind.
1: Yeah, we're already at that
2: level. Yeah,
1: right. He's he's hearing this either in his head or as he says, he gets this deep sense of impression, intuitiveness of what the meaning is.
2: And so much of this encounter reminds me of near-death experiences. There's a book I've been reading recently by Natalie Sudman about her near-death experience in Iraq when she was in the military and got blown up by a roadside bomb. And the amount of weird cosmic philosophical information that was given to her in a split second that fills a book about what happened to her, who she met, what they explained to her. Who about is this again? Natalie Sudman. Okay. And again, a book that was written recently called The Application of Impossible Things. And I thought the same thing. Reading that book, I'm like, how can she remember this stuff? I mean, I, I can barely understand it even as I'm reading it. And yet that tends to be an element of these encounters. You do remember and things make sense in the moment and now the human left behind with human tools and human language tries to explain and tries to put across these ideas in whatever way they can. And I think that's a lot of what this book is, and it gets more so toward the end. I think we all read the book just this week. Yeah, I reread it, and it does get into some pretty dense and almost disappointingly familiar religious <laughs> yeah. imagery where you're yeah. like, oh, okay, well, I've, I think I've heard this before.
1: The concepts presented, these are grandiose in all the best ways to say that. and, and they touch upon not just a certain religion, but all religions in a exactly. way. The, it's the big message is what's coming through here. So when somebody's got, look, we got one shot with this guy. He's a little sleepy. We've just freaked him out and he's about ready to pass out. You're going to make sure this guy relays the message correctly.
2: And you have to ask yourself, when the message is this familiar, yeah. when it has to do with each individual man, woman, and child on earth is unique and is important on a cosmic level, in a realm without time. This gets talked about a lot in religion and also gets talked about a lot in individual spiritual encounters. Right. Do the similarities make these stories more believable or less? If all the stories were completely different and the messages were always completely different, would it make it more believable or less believable? Or do the similarities make you think, well, maybe everyone is getting that same message. You you hit that particular plane And you're going to hear that story. And maybe it's a chicken and the egg sort of thing. Is he just ripping off Christianity? Or did Christianity come from people having exactly the sort of encounters that Orfeo had?
1: As Orfeo calls it, what's relayed to him is the idea of the cosmic law is the one great truth. And the truth is not something individual for each of us. Like, well, you you got a separate truth. The idea, the message, the truth is for everyone in the universe, and that the people of Earth, a lot of them aren't getting it because there's a lot of war down here. There's a lot of negativity. There's evil that we must
2: overcome. The idea is like, hey, y'all need to shape up. Right. And in religious texts, there's always the, you don't know it until you know it. You know, it's like that moment, the road to Damascus moment. You know, that's when Saul traveling to Damascus, total anti-Christian, you know, I mean, really outspoken against Christianity had a vision on the road to Damascus, became the Apostle Paul, Yeah. okay? By the way, what experience did he have? A light in the sky, yeah. a disembodied voice, and for three days afterwards, he couldn't see because something happened to his eyes. Was it Klieg conjunctivitis <laughs> exactly. that John Keel uh, talks about? conjunctivitis, yeah. Who knows? Wait a but- minute
0: though, wait, okay, I okay oh, don't, get no, don't, don't, don't get Scott no no started I, have this. A, I have a uh, question about a point that you've made that I it. feel like you're walking away from a little bit here but I'm hadn't thought about it even though because I was the one pitching that he inhaled a bunch of plastic fumes <laughs> well, you know that's what it would be Scott yeah and
2: so Maybe and then, that then he's was like the, uh, gateway drug to the uh, spiritual experience and well, that's Scott, what I'm asking
0: because yeah. you're comparing it to a near-death experience what if he's just driving home from work sick and he almost died And then this happened. So then what we're doing now is we're conflating, maybe on purpose, the idea of a near-death experience with a contactee visitation.
2: Well, in The Omega Project by Kenneth Ring, it's a book devoted to the similarities between alien encounters and near-death experiences. Not only the experiences themselves, but the experiencers who have been asked to fill out questionnaires and who score the same on various questions. So the kind of people who have alien encounters are the same kind of people who have near-death experiences. Okay, so then we come back to what you just said a minute ago, the chicken
0: and the egg analogy. My question would then become, if you believe any of this at all, my question would then become, (laughs) um, are you dying because you're being visited by aliens, or are you being visited by aliens and as a result almost dying?
1: Well, Orfeo explains that a little in the book, in that the aliens tell him, because as the encounters go on, these people have amazing abilities. You know, they can restore your vitality and vim and vigor for the moment by mysterious food and drink. And, and, you know, his questions are like, well, can you help me here? I'm kind of sickly. I don't feel good a lot of the time. Oh, totally. And the idea is like, that's part of the cosmic law. We can't really do that for you. We can make you feel... You know some vim and vigor and a little peppy while you're with us, but we can't interfere in that way. And the reason they give is that, I guess, it kind of speaks to what you're saying. The, the people that are have some kind of plague or are sickly as kids or have some kind of affliction, usually physically, not so much mentally, I say, but mostly physically, is that when you're full of vim and vigor and you're handsome and healthy and you look like Charles Atlas, <laughs> that. You are already doing your life thing on your own path, and you don't need any help. You're so focused because you're living life to the fullest. You're getting out, you're water skiing in that pyramid. You're doing all the great things that people water do. in the pyramid. I'm just talking about 50s image, you know, like what people doing... <laughs> People do it, you know, they're I on love the jiggly. That that's
0: what you plucked out yeah. from all of the culture. Well, from, uh, actually, a sign from uh, that you're really getting out there and doing it. Yeah, you're from water my,
1: skiing in a pyramid. I was thinking about what I flashed in my head was 50s clip theist uh, clip, clip, uh, movie clip imagery. Do. Yes, yeah. and yeah. for
0: people that aren't following that, we don't mean literally a pyramid like in Egypt. There is this 50s imagery of several water skiers stacked up like cheerleaders, standing on each other's shoulders, yeah. water skiing at once. That's the moment that Forrest is telling you, <laughs> you are living <laughs> your life <laughs> like the yes.
1: fullest. Capability. Yeah, I've been water skiing, but I've not done that. You're really, <laughs> you're focused on other things, just having a great life because you're handsome and you're full of, of vitality. But the sickly, the afflicted, and there's a lot of ties to Edgar Casey, which I will talk about later. Edgar so, Casey,
0: just briefly yeah. for our listeners that don't know who he was, and yes, we are going to be doing a series on him at some point, was otherwise known as the sleeping prophet. And he would like lay down and go into a trance and espouse all this yeah. information that people are still studying to this day.
1: Kind of in the period a generation earlier, his... Heyday was probably late 30s into the 40s, and I think 50s, I'll have to look that up, but kind of a similar deal in that, yes, he was more diagnosing people with health ailments and getting the knowledge from... Quote Somewhere unquote else. the source, yes, yeah, the source. even a remote viewing. They call it the source. Yes, where does it come from? But in Orpheo's case, that's also case, what Patrick yeah.
0: Swayze, Bodhi, was looking for in Point Break.
2: He was just like, I'm just trying to find the source. <laughs> the so, well, well, surfing and we've come full circle. Yeah,
1: <laughs> surfing energy back to Point Break, which Scott Tyson, the first one. Yeah, exactly. The idea though is that there's a reason that they chose him, and that yes. he's got these spiritual, in some past connection to them, and that generally people that are sickly have developed more spiritual awareness and sense. In a way that where people have maybe lost their sight or their sense of smell or hearing, their other senses pick up. And so in an Orfeo's case, because he's been sickly and, and has developed more of his mind than his body, he has been made to be more receptive to this... They did suggest that in yeah, the book. To yes, totally to they, yeah, totally correct. Yeah,
2: they say it's only because of his sickness and his physical infirmity that they're able to contact him at exactly. all. Exactly. It's part of his second encounter, which we're going to get to, but they make it really clear that physical ailments, along with all pain and suffering and sorrow, are man's lessons, they say, in the school of the world where wisdom and spiritual evolution are gained primarily through suffering. And that's some of my favorite stuff. Suffering? When they oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when they describe Earth, yes they yes. use terms like... The house of sorrows yeah. or the yeah. accursed planet. Yeah.
1: Well, it, yeah, but you know what it is? It goes back to that old idea of people saying, is there a physical hell or are some people experiencing hell on earth? Oh yeah. They and describe, if, you, if you were experiencing some of the, the things that you see on the news now in the most negative ways, it can be a hell on earth. And that's the point.
2: Right. Because they say we're living within the illusion of time and the illusion of death. So, I mean, again, this is very, very, it's uh, it's the not big even picture. just Western religion and philosophy. Oh, no, no. It's Eastern, it's, it's Northern and Southern.
1: Like I said, it's Hinduism, it's Buddhism. It touches all of the big messages.
2: Right. Interestingly, science has also told us that time's an illusion. Yeah. yeah. Science hasn't gotten to the point where it's told us that death is an illusion. <laughs> right. So that's what a lot of... Your listeners are hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and well, frankly, I am. Yeah, I please end Oh, this. me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you? We're, not, we're not hoping for the sweet kiss of death. No.
1: Well. Now, there's something else we should talk about that occurred, a revelatory chunk of mind-blowing information that happened that was bestowed upon Orfeo by his two uh, ethereal beings. It's all voluntary, by the way. There's no probing. There's no uh, jabbing.
2: Yeah, this is all very friendly. It's all very very voluntary,
1: very friendly. But they basically explain what all these flying disks are and how they work. Well, they first start by saying that the way that the flying sauces are perceived by humans on earth is exactly how they want to be perceived with skepticism and humor. Think about it. The common sense is if everyone just thought like, oh my gosh, we really are being invaded by a superior intelligence with flying disks that can bend the laws as we know them of time and space. Everyone's going to freak out. That's not what they want. They want this gradual easing into people's consciousness of their presence and existence, And so it's kind of happening the way that they want. So that's what they're telling Orfeo here. They wanted the people of Earth to become only gradually aware of them and grow accustomed to the idea of space visitors. It was best that we receive them lightly at first for the sake of our own stability. So it's happening as they predicted, which is, of course, the answer to the question, why aren't they landing on the White House lawn?
2: Right. They've been easing their way into our lives for what feels like (laughs) forever. Wait, also, I have
0: questions about this
2: whole pandemonium thing, which
0: I always felt like that's kind of a lame argument. What's I mean, good, we really, uh, at this yeah. point, the whole country is going to melt down if a UFO lands.
1: Well, one, I no know. No going to believe think,
0: it, even if it's real for the first thing. People are just going to make, oh, it's CGI. And then I, I don't see this idea of this global panic or this na- national well, here's, panic. Well, here's the thing.
1: There's a difference because, yes, we have that on the Internet now. Guess what I saw zipping around the sky? People, oh, that's, you know, Scott, of course, is like, yeah, I, I did that 20 years ago in After Effects. So yeah. I, could, I got the filter button for that. If suddenly you turn on the news and it's that classic trope in the movies where all three networks and even PBS NewsHour they're all announcing that a craft has just landed on the White House lawn or it's it's Independence Day, you are going to have a different feeling than seeing something that just posted today on the internet that contradicts the Maori Island incident. This is real. This is that was, really that happening.
0: Was a, a Wikipedia page, by the way, oh, was just like
1: Oh, you didn't you see that on oh, see that on, uh, on Buzzfeed? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in reference to that though. There are going to be some people that do freak out because now everything's turned on its head. So there are going to be people who are welcoming it. There are going to be people who are now stockpiling supplies in their dugout basement. And then there's other cultures that are going to flip out. Think about uh, War of the Worlds. And you thought like, I'm sure that's what Orson Welles said. Like, come on, it's a radio play. Who's going to take this seriously, please? There's commercials, for goodness sake. Well, people committed suicide. And, you know, that was in the thirties or whatever. That doesn't happen nowadays. People are much more sophisticated. Well, it happened We've lost a
2: few people just in this podcast alone. (laughs) (laughs)
1: They're not that sophisticated. It happened again in a South American town where they rebroadcast it. And guess what happened? It's like people started to believe it. And not that the biggest pandemonium didn't hit then. It's when people found out it was a hoax. They burned down the station and people died. So you think like, oh, come on, this is not, we're just going to mess with you. You don't know really what can happen on a global scale if this becomes the biggest story in the history of humankind. Okay. Okay. So so (laughs) as to your your query, I believe that, uh, just think about how much we're aware of it now. When I first got my first iPhone, it wasn't until a few years after that, like now there's an alien emoji. Yeah. And now everyone's got the alien emoji. And Skrillex's album cover has got aliens on it. It's what? becoming more of the... You can draw a line from Orfeo to the iPhone to Skrillex. <laughs> to Skrillex. It's all well, a direct connection are. throughout
2: the We are now two steps away ages. from the The age. other thing
1: I want to mention is that, of course, the UFO phenomenon is not starting at 1947. You hear a lot of critics like, well, that's a new True. thing. It's like, well, no. Oh, the, there's the uh, Alexander the Great. His column was buzzed by gleaming silver shields. Yes. Two years later at the battle of Tyre with the Phoenicians, a couple of shields, shot some lasers down, knocked down the wall. Now that's according to Alexander the Great, if you believe him or not, right. or wherever his scribes were. But these things have happened throughout history, but how they've been perceived is different. So now we're in the modern era, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, and we, we go past that. And so now we're getting a little more sophisticated, which is the message of these ethereal beings. Okay, you're getting a little more mature. So we're getting ready to kind of divulge our message, and you, are Feo are one of the messengers we've chosen. And so about the disks, what I found was interesting is how the voice, now he's kind of hearing this voice. The image is kind of fading in and out. He's hearing this voice in his head. And the voice stated that the disks were powered and controlled by tapping into universal magnetic forces. Thus, their activated molecules received and converted energy inherent in all the universe. It further explained that the complexities of the apparently simple structure of their disks were so great that to an earthling, a saucer would be considered as having a synthetic brain, or synthetic brains, in quotes. And I thought that was interesting, because in 1947, now he's talking about artificial intelligence. Although each one is to a degree under the remote control of a mothership. Also, most of the saucers, as well as spacecraft of other planetary evolutions, are of a circular shape and vary in size from a few inches to hundreds of feet in diameter. There's a couple of interesting things here. One, so what these ethereal beings are saying is that Most of the disks you see are actually not piloted by little green men or little gray men or bulbous heads or reptilians. They're actually material interface tools by these ethereal beings because apparently they don't need these uh, flying disks, but they act as super smart, very advanced... Machines in which to interact with humans and deliver messages or appear as TV screens that are 3D floating right. in front of uh, passing cars. So and Sometimes
2: they're very physical and sometimes they're not very physical.
1: Exactly. Whatever they need to be, they can change shape. They're propelled by the resonant vibrational and harmonic energy throughout the universe, which is maybe that's dark matter, which comprises most of the universe, which we still don't understand. These are advanced scientific and sci-fi ideas from a guy who works in the plastics division at a manufacturing plant. Nothing against that. What I'm saying is that, from my viewpoint, it's like, it's pretty good sci-fi if you just take it on that level alone.
2: And it may have influenced some sci-fi that comes in the future. Absolutely. I mean, the two words we haven't used yet are prime directive, Ah, but we're going to. Yeah. right. So two months to the day after the first encounter along Forest Lawn Drive, what was then Forest Lawn Drive, comes the second encounter. And this one I love because now we get to talk about the Hyperion Avenue Freeway Bridge, as he calls it. Now, this is a bridge that still exists in Los Angeles. It's still there, but there's one big difference. Instead of towering over empty fields that butt up alongside the Los Angeles River, there is now a giant freeway that runs under the Hyperion Avenue Bridge. So when he calls it the Hyperion Avenue Freeway Bridge, he's referring to the top of the bridge, which is really just a street. That, in his mind, was the freeway. Now, the Interstate 5 runs underneath it. So I get the feeling that if you wanted to actually physically occupy the same space that Orfeo did when he was under the bridge for this second and then a third encounter, you would be standing in one of the traffic lanes of this busily-traveled freeway. Right. So you wouldn't last too long. And we went down there the other day and tried to get Yesterday. a look.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we have pictures, which you'll see on their website.
2: Right. And you want to get a feeling for it because he describes this sort of eerie, you know, moonscape of weeds and empty lots with the soaring archways that go, in his words, hundreds of feet above his head. I'm not sure yeah. it's hundreds, but it's gotta look big. Yeah. At that sure. point, sixty-five years ago. It was high up off the ground and there was no one down there. Right. Now there's a freeway and some homeless people (laughs) in sort of the, you know, outlying areas between that and the uh, Well, you can tell
1: what he calls the Atwater Freeway Bridge. There are steps that go from the bottom level you could take all the way up to the top of the bridge where I'm sure during the day a lot more people walk because there are these kind of pylons, these decorative pillars or pylons on the
2: bridge and there's bench seating there. So he's taking a walk one night and he sees a craft, again, semi-physical, materializing underneath the bridge. He gets that weird tingly feeling, the icy fingers up and down <laughs> his spine.
1: Black magic, yes.
2: And and he's under the bridge, and it's already a creepy place, and he talks about how lonely it is, and he is alone, and he sees what he describes as an igloo beginning to take shape, and he realizes this is a craft of some sort. And so... He does what anyone would do. He walks up to it and he goes inside. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I certainly would. Sure.
2: He describes it as a pearl igloo, and he hears music. He actually hears like a oh uh, the tune that he knows. Oh, it's
1: um where fools rush in. Ah, uh, fools rush in. Yeah,
2: and I, I don't ah. know whose
1: version it is because uh, Sinatra and Dino. All right, so let's <laughs> so let's version.
2: review. Yeah, he sees a paranormal shimmering UFO igloo. And he walks right into it what? to the strains of <laughs> fool's rush in. Yes. Now, <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. No, he's apprehensive. He says, you know, he's, it's that mix of nervousness and excitement, but there's also a feeling of compulsion. Like he's compelled, he's beckoned into totally. this thing. It's,
2: it's cool. It's cool. Come on in, Orfeo. We're going to treat you right. So he goes in, he sits in that weird chair. He describes like an easy chair that sort of forms around his body. Yes. It's
1: a very strange and advanced material that conforms to every contour of his body and kind of moves with him extremely comfortable
2: and before he knows it he's in the air well he gets the sensation
1: that he's kind of pressing down into the chair like maybe we're moving and then he hears a hum come up from under the floor like maybe that's where the engine is
2: right and they do this pretty well at disneyland
1: <laughs> yeah, Right, mission to mars yeah where suddenly they suck your seat oh, in
2: yeah the seat sort of sucks down which makes you feel like you're going up yeah, yeah. yeah. again disneyland was later so this is yes this is before disneyland <laughs> right. before the freeway but after TV... Anyway, so <laughs> right. now he's in this craft and windows on the side of the craft begin to open and he is in outer space looking down on Earth. And from the right, another larger craft, also in outer space, begins to appear and move across. And while all this is happening, he's getting more telepathic messages, a voice in his brain, basically. And they start right up with the message of universal brotherhood, and he is told that everyone on earth is divinely created and immortal, and that they're all working toward their salvation, either on a path for good or for evil. Right. So again, a quasi-religious message is being given here. And then it goes from quasi to directly religious because the voice says, look, Orfeo, I know what you want to ask us. I know the big question on your mind, so let's just go ahead and tell you. Here's the deal with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not the whole story, but yes. You yeah. basically go, yeah. all right, he's known as Lord of the Flame. He is an entity of the sun, meaning S U N.
1: Yes, the sun, the source of light.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes straight to Jesus. Now, yeah. when they teed up the question, I did not know that was going to be the question. They teed it up in a way where it was, it's <laughs> right. obvious. Okay, you're on a spaceship. Yeah. I get it. You want to know about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, also, they could, they could read his would. thoughts.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, days ago when we were discussing uh, this topic and how we're going to approach it and the kind of the in, more interesting talking points, you know, and I said, probably most all, maybe all of paranormal subjects and items lead or at their source, are about spirituality. Yeah. When people get upset is that you're dealing with their core beliefs, because if you say, and you think about, like, strip out all the the Christianity and uh, Judaism and and Hinduism and Muslim beliefs out of all of this, if you think about, like, Bigfoot or just UFOs in general as spaceships, not even thinking about, like, well, that's a message from God, you got to wonder, this is not an original thought, but it's been said before, Where do they come from? What is their origin story? What is their creation myth? Is it the same as ours? Do they have a different thing? It's like, hey, you peons on Earth, you you little people here, we got the real story. I mean, we don't have any proof. (laughs) It's just a belief. But come on, we're advanced. Look, we just got here from a billion miles across from space. So we have a better idea about our myths than you do. It all comes back to spirituality. Where do we go after we die? Are ghosts real? Are spirits real? Or are you just in the ground? So everything kind of leads back to, well, Bigfoot, yes. Like, who made Bigfoot? Why is he here?
2: Well, all of these voices come from a place of greater spiritual evolution. And they're basically telling us, look, you guys got born on Earth. Sucks to be you. (laughs) You're, <laughs> right. you're the accursed planet. Yeah. You are living with sorrow, pain, suffering, and misery, but that's what you got to go through to evolve spiritually. Evolve. And sure. they're very clear. I mean, again, he, in this portion of his narrative, he describes how he is literally baptized in the true light of the world's eternal. mm Again, it's, it's hard to get away from the, this is spiritualist doctrine, this Absolutely. is Christian doctrine, this is very drenched in the idea that we have individual souls, we're on this sort of purgatorial planet for a while, right. but don't worry, better stuff is around the corner. And then it kind of, again, gets into a, a near-death experience narrative where in this tunnel of light that he is baptized in, he has a life review. He sees past lives. Yeah. He understands that he has lived many lives. And this is blowing him away.
1: Oh, yeah. Reincarnation is a big uh, element here. Again, I said there's a lot of tie-ins with uh, Edgar Casey and his beliefs of past lives and your evolutionary plane.
2: And it is charming and endearing how he approaches all of this and receives all of this with this level of humility. He's reduced to tears over and over. And this feeling of just, I'm, I'm just so ashamed that I'm this human and I didn't understand <laughs> right. what was going on. There's a quote here from this
0: section of the book of his, I had never been an actively religious man, but in that moment, I knew God as a tangible, immutable force that reaches to the furthest depths of time and eternity. And I felt assurance that the beings in whose care I was
2: at at that moment were close to the infinite power. Yeah. In subsequent meetings, he does not come away as terrified and shaken. He comes away a little bit more spiritually He's, fulfilled. Yes. Because, like the people who have the good near-death experiences, he kind of feels like, yeah, I don't need to stress so much about what's going on at Lockheed and what's going right. on with the wife and kids. This is just this weird moment in eternity that I'm experiencing. And it's really small compared to all of existence as shown to me by these outer space intelligences. How long have you had your Casper mattress now, Forrest?
1: Well, coming up on a year. And I got to say, I really do love it. And I tell everyone about it, even if they're not shopping for a mattress. And I remember when the box first showed up, I was like, Oh, they get that mattress in there. And then you set it loose, and it all unfolds, and it's kind of magical. Well, anyway, L.A. in the heart of the summer gets pretty hot, and I really did sleep cooler that first night. That's because
0: Casper's in-house team of engineers obsessively spent thousands of hours developing their mattress for breathability and for a perfectly increasing density of supportive memory foams, resulting in an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink, and just the
1: right bounce. (laughs) What are you reading off their website? Maybe a little. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, I honestly feel like it's got the perfect amount of give, so that it cushions you for a couple of inches, but then gives you plenty of support underneath that. Because what I didn't want is the feeling that I'm endlessly sinking down into a marshmallow. Well, don't take our word for it because Casper has now gotten over 20,000 reviews online with an average rating of 4.8 stars. So it's fast becoming the internet's favorite mattress. You can try a Casper mattress risk-free for 100 nights in your own home. And if you don't love it, they're going to come pick it up and refund you everything. You're going to be spending a third of your life sleeping, so you want to get this right. Well, when you put it like that, you
0: really have no reason not to try out a Casper mattress. Because considering how well-engineered this
1: thing is, they sell for a shockingly fair price. Wait, well, well, Casper has free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And their mattresses are designed, developed, and assembled right here in the good old U.S. of A. And right now, we're going to tell you how you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to Casper.com slash A-L. And then using the promo code AL at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's right. Go to www.casper.com/al
0: to get $50 towards the purchase of any mattress. Casper also has engineered pillows and sheets, but this offer is only valid towards a mattress purchase. Then use promo code AL at checkout.
1: Okay, one last time. Go to www.casper. That's C A S P E R.com. Slash a L and then use promo code a L at checkout to get $50 off. Hi, I'm Melissa. And when I'm not investigating rainbow portals out in Black Forest, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
0: What I love about this, too, is yesterday when we went to the Hyperion Bridge, and the, there's a company right there next to it. We had to park in their parking lot and kind of walk through. And they came out and, you know, we're concerned because we're sort of, it looks like we're casing their cars for theft. And uh, they came out and I, I explained to them, yeah, this man saw a UFO here. It had like a life-changing experience. And their response was the equivalent of, huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How oh, about that? Yeah, but what do you say to that? This was a long time ago. You know, this bridge you've been working next to for 20 years? Well, 30 years before that, a guy went under here and went into a
2: spaceship. They were and, not reassured yeah, by finding you, out we were all a bunch of UFO nuts. Yeah. But you, you know, I would have preferred that we had a brick <laughs> and throwing it through the uh, back window of their trail. It's laser. easier to
0: understand. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing about we talk about it as Hyperion Avenue. And I've always thought about this because this is, as you said, Forrest, it's close to your house. There's actually a restaurant that we meet at over there for beer and burgers, sometimes called Hyperion Public. And I hadn't really thought about the word Hyperion, and I was just looking it up while we were doing the show here. Hyperion, also as Huperion, means the high one. It's one of the 12 Titan children of Gaia, the earth, and Uranus, sky or heaven, who led by Cronus, overthrew their father Uranus, and were themselves later overthrown by the Olympians. And there's a quote down here from uh, Deodorus Siculus, I believe. I'm not sure that's how you say his name. but
1: I don't know, but I use it. It keeps, me, uh, it keeps my underarms dry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Of Hyperion, we are told that he was the first to understand, by diligent attention and observation, the movement of both the sun and the moon and the other stars, and the seasons as well, in that they are caused by these bodies, and to make these facts known to others, and that for this reason he was called the father of these bodies, since he had begotten, so to speak, the speculation about them and their nature. And this is why the
2: aliens didn't choose Fletcher Drive. Exactly. <laughs> Fletcher that's my point. Church. It was very, <laughs> there is just something. one exit away. Yeah. I you know, very convenient.
0: There is something <laughs> in a name. There's something. Oh, no. It's yeah. about the connections. When I was talking about the Borgias earlier and just all that, I do believe that these labels mean something. I do think that it's interesting that this whole thing, if you believe any of it at all, <laughs> took place <laughs> at the Hyperion Avenue Bridge. And that's who Hyperion was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I no, mean, and that's, you know, that's earth
0: culture, earth history, right. but it's interesting. Again, to me. if you
1: don't believe Orfeo and again, all the significance of his name, then I say he did a pretty good job researching all the elements of this sci-fi story. I mean, like it's a piece of genius writing. Choosing himself is this like, I'm just a humble uh, guy growing up in Burbank, working a job as a, is a, UFOEO. Wow. Yeah. And then <laughs> when you, when you read, it's like pretty good writing for a guy that never claimed to be a writer. That's his big thing. It's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just telling it like it is.
2: Well, you know, Jung would have a field day with this, and You're apparently right. did, and we'll get to that. Ah, yes. At the end of this particular jaunt into outer space, Orfeo was returned to his starting point underneath the Hyperion Avenue Bridge, back down on Earth now, but he's given something. He's given a small metallic disc that he takes with him, and now this is going to be his proof. This is basically his autograph. Oh, yeah. He
1: picks it up off the floor.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And And <laughs> right. he's able to walk away with it, and on the walk home, of course, it dissipates into nothingness. <laughs> <laughs> like fog, yeah. like a dream. Right. But when he gets home, he notices there is a burn on his chest. That's right. Just under his heart. Well, it's a, called a circumpunct. It's the, we talked about this before, the symbol. It's just, it's like the hydrogen atom symbol. He said it looked like, like the hydrogen yeah, atom. The dot with a circle yeah. around it. Yeah. And that is his only souvenir of that particular journey. The third encounter, <laughs> yeah. kind of my favorite, because, you know. <laughs> In any series, the third one is always the best. Well, that's the (laughs) the, the rule of three. It was just a few days later. It was August 2nd, 1952. And Orfeo, I I love this part of the story. His wife, Mabel, works at the Los Feliz drive-in. Oh, my goodness. I wish that
1: we're still around, don't you? It had an all-night, or like a late-night snack bar.
2: Yeah, where you could work at a snack bar as an adult. In 1952, this was the Starbucks. This was the hangout. This was the place you would go. And... His wife worked there and he'd walk down and hang out with everyone. And they yeah, would he'd go help her. With each right? other. And this is, by the way, right near the Hyperion Avenue Bridge. You'd go under the bridge, sort of over the river and under the bridge <laughs> right? across the vacant lots. To the Los Feliz drive-in we go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's on Riverside Drive. It's right there. Yeah. So this, from where he lived and the way he describes, he doesn't give the exact address, although God knows we tried to find it. Yeah, yeah. He We're lived close. somewhere just off Glendale Boulevard. So right. Glendale and Hyperion sort of hyperion kind of sprouts out of glendale boulevard and so my guess is that he was on one of those cross streets in atwater village and he just walks you know maybe a mile if that down into the barrens across the river under the bridge and then makes a right on riverside drive and just you know 50 yards up that's where this drive-in would have been two screens it looked like
1: yeah dual screens because yeah. your kids back in the old days, they just didn't blast the audio over a giant loudspeakers. You each had an individual speaker in your car that you hung on the, you rolled down the window, you hung the speaker on it, you rolled it back up so it would wedge it in there yeah. and you, you listened to a mono version of the audio.
2: You they know? were a big yeah. deal. They existed in Southern California, a lot of them, through the 50s, through the 60s, into the 70s, a little bit into the 80s. Yeah. And then property just became too valuable. Yes. And just having a giant parking lot pointed at a screen when, you know, <laughs> yeah. at the, Dawn of the VCR age right. made no sense. Yeah, and bit by bit, they either got torn down, mostly in Southern California, or turned into sort of like open air flea markets. Yeah,
1: swap meets and flea markets, that kind of thing. But you could entertain the whole family for under ten bucks because, like, ad- admission as an adult, it was like two fifty. I think for a kid, it was like a buck or fifty. Well, I cents. got hidden in the trunk. Yeah, those. Were, yeah, <laughs> you're, and I'm, that's you're, not you not just
2: on drive-in. Yeah, night. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: we're saving <laughs> put
2: it
0: put at two dollars. Put yeah. on the pajamas, get right. in the trunk. Oh, and, you know, a,
1: I love that as a kid. Yeah, can you put your pajamas on? Because yes. you probably fall asleep by the last third of the movie. Yep. Well, uh, that was yeah.
2: when I've seen old trailers that they would play at the drive in, and one of them advertised shut in night. Bring a shut-in to the goodness. drive-in. Wow. You know, take old Aunt Gladys, who's locked away in her attic room yeah. Yeah. that you never allow her to leave. Watch her crack a window, yeah. get her out of that, and bring her down to the cinema and buy her some popcorn. To <laughs> see the blob. <laughs> exactly. See, exactly. Yeah. Half price for shut-ins. Yeah. It's yeah. a lovely message. Yeah. yeah.
1: So when we talk about, there's a cosmic prime directive that the ethereal beings are under and everyone else in the universe, apparently. And there's a directive for Ofeo, which is spread the story, man. Get out there. Start telling people. I know you're going to be met with criticism and ridicule, yeah. but forget that. This story needs to get out. We've chosen you. It's a big burden. So here's the thing. So he starts telling people everywhere he goes, at work, at the cafe where Mabel is, You know, and he names names. This is the other thing I like. These are actually real people, at least the people that he names that are in um, positions of some authority here in Southern California, like the director of the Santa Monica Airport, Vernon Tyler. It's a real guy. So you can look these people up. The individuals might be a little harder, but we did find some uh, entries that existed. So he's telling people who, who he talked to and who had also had experiences of their own of at least seeing these flying discs and he says go talk to them they'll tell you at least that they saw these things
2: yeah and so the night that he's there at the Los Feliz drive-in and what's funny is that when you picture a drive-in when you picture that sort of 50s image yeah. invariably you're picturing a horror movie or some sort of invasion <laughs> yeah. from yeah, outer space of movie so Orfeo's there under the lights of the two screens, hanging out at the snack bar with his wife, kind of helping out. Yeah. And he has been talking about his encounters and people are teasing him and he sees a light. He sees one of the craft and he immediately tells people, look, there it is right now. Yeah. And he drags them out to look at it and they're like, oh, it's nothing. It's an airplane. It's nothing. (laughs) And no one believes him. Yeah. And he's incredibly discouraged and it kind of ruins the night for him and he decides, you know what? I'm going to walk home. So he walks home. And as he's walking home, he, of course, goes back under the bridge. And it Mm. just does feel very mythological and very almost like folklore (laughs) under the bridge. And his mind goes back to the igloo. He looks for the igloo. Igloo's not there. But then some dude comes up out of the darkness and really scares him because he's sort of coming from an angle where it's sort of almost like a dead end sort of where the bridge meets the road. And it's like, whoa, oh my God, who's this guy? Is he going to attack me? Am I going to get shivved? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's what I think. Shived, when I go yeah. yes.
2: And as it turns out, no, it's a space brother named Neptune wearing a very close fitting yeah. blue uniform. Right. But in this case, it shimmers. It looks like rippling water across the surface. Yeah. Like it's kind of coming in and out of our reality. It's right? being yes.
1: held in place by a frequency. It's There's some debate in.
0: as to whether or not Neptune yeah. ma- exists materially in our world. Yes, that, yes. right. No, Which because, is what Orfeo seems to be implying
1: yeah. here. His theory, or at least what they tell him, because he gets enlightened to the whole uh, journey down the road, quote unquote, as he has been told. These are beings that do not exist in our dimensional level. We are down here in the muck and the filth, in the heavy densities, of a lower vibration, here to learn our lesson because we were, we were bad kids in the past. And the other beings throughout the universe do exist, but they are more ethereal in that time only exists in our dimension. They are of multi-dimensions of different harmonies and vibrations. And therefore, that's why we can't really see them or interact with them unless they choose to. Exactly.
2: So, and I guess they chose to because they begin to interact and they're talking and they go on a little walk and they go to the LA River. Yeah. So, right where the Hyperion Avenue Bridge crosses the five freeway now, there's still the LA River and there's bike paths and people go jogging there. Now, take your mind back 65 years to late at night and there's Orfeo. And if you were there, if you were driving down Riverside Drive or if you happened to be there, would you have seen him walking alone or walking with? some sort of figure next to him, we don't know. He even wonders that. He sees cars coming up Riverside Drive and wonders, do they see this kind of wavering guy next to me?
1: (laughs) Right. It's Woody Derenberger. Do these other cars see the craft that's hovering 30 feet above the road?
2: Yeah. Well, if they do, no one thinks anything of it because Neptune at this point is in somewhat physical form. And they walk up to the LA River and they sit down on the cement banks of the LA River and they have their conversation. And this is where he learns... The fate of all humans has been to live on Earth because each and every one of us and everyone who has ever lived on planet Earth, apparently, previously lived on another planet. In other words, our souls did. The word soul is never used. Yeah. But there's no other way to understand You're being. this story. Exactly. And everything was great on this other planet where we used to live. But we were all jerks, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. We got a little too ahead of ourselves, and that planet was destroyed, and we were punished. Self-destroyed. Self-destroyed, exactly. And almost as punishment, we were sent to the accursed planet Earth, where we lived in an even more material state, where we would have to experience time and death. And then Neptune really brings it down another (laughs) notch and says, there's going to be what he calls an hour of travail. Yeah. Okay. What he calls the great accident. And he says, mankind will survive Armageddon, but will then emerge into a great new age of brotherhood. And this may be the first time the phrase new age is used it's in contact TV right, literature. Right.
1: It's pretty early on for that. I don't know if that's the the true provenance of, of the phrase, but it is, you got to realize. I found it, yeah. Though, I found it cited
0: on. a few times as being one of the first times that it had been seen in print. Now, of yeah. course, it's
1: got, you know, it's taken a derisive tone to it as kind of woo-woo, moo-moo wearing, you know, that kind of airy-fairy, all that Unlike kind of stuff. Unlike this story. Well, this is be- <laughs> this wasn't,
0: it, that didn't exist yet. Thought. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yes. that didn't, that did not exist yet. And not, yeah. and not in the same way. It, but there are similarities, of course, because with the New Age, it's a new age of enlightenment that we must attain. That is our purpose here. And the reason that, that we're all down here in the muck and the mire trying to figure things out, is that we need to evolve out of the animalistic, violent, self-serving, loathsome creatures that we are to attain this higher state of being, which is possible because these, these creatures, these beings, what they are really are older brothers and sisters, and they're trying to bring us up and they're giving us a little nudge here and there. A common thread with these stories is a great impending disaster But the other thing I liked about this, and it also kind of sci-fi, is that uh, there is no future but what we make. We can change this if we decide that we are going to work together in brotherly love and harmony with each other and not try and blow each other up. We can alter this fate.
2: Right. If we don't, we'll be in course for a correction. Yeah, and this great accident of which he speaks, a little later we find out there's a date attached. There is a year. <laughs> yeah. It's literature's greatest year, 1986. George Orwell, oh, I believe, yeah. wrote oh, a yeah, classic yeah. Six, about yeah. 1986. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here we yeah. see it echoed once again.
1: Well, there's a tie-in there. You know, he, I think he flipped it. So it was, it was 1948 when he wrote that. And said, well, if I flip it to 1984. Oh, was that it? Yeah. That's the one story well, I heard, I believe, is that, yeah, Orwell penned that then. And he said, like, well, what's further enough in the future. My pet peeve is that... Sci-fi authors and movies, they never put it far enough in the future. Like Blade Runner was supposed to be 2019. Well, well, we're coming up pretty close. I want to see a flying car.
2: <laughs> I know. When did we get that? Yeah. You know, 86 was only 34 years in the future. Right, right. And when we look backward, 52, 86, it's all the past. Yeah. With all those same songs from both of those years are being played on KRLA. <laughs> Right. But when you look ahead, 34 years, it seems unimaginable. It doesn't even seem like we'll be here in 34 years. Yeah, especially then.
1: Right. This is the era of a lot of, and of course, people will say like, well, a lot of that's been reverse engineered, Uh, you know, Philip Corso and all that's been reverse engineered from Roswell. That's why we have the microwave. That's why we have these technological advancements. It's like I used to pick up a, a dial rotary phone on the wall, and now I've got a phone that's uh, flat and plays a, a thousand amps on it. So when you see the progression, it's, it's all coming to a head. You have to take the political stage at this time as well, because we were wondering, it's like, well, what did happen in 86? Is, were, we, were we close to any kind of great disaster? Well, I did find one. In 1983, we could have very well started World War III with a military NATO exercise called Able Archer 83, and that it was such a realistic war games exercise. It was meant to be realistic. That simulated, what if the Russians had a nuclear strike? How do we respond? How would we organize? Well, the Russians saw this as like, oh my gosh, they're really going to attack. This is all well, just there was, pretense. Yeah, and they were using a lot of code yeah.
0: to communicate that hadn't been used before. So the Russians couldn't even monitor the drill. Right. Which made them exceedingly nervous, which then was like, wait, this drill is just a cover for an attack. Right. That's what's happening. So what they thought was, it's not a drill, it's a cover, which is something to think about when you think about what's happening these days with all the drills and tests and things that are happening, especially between uh, North America and uh, North Korea. But anyway... No, it was, it, was,
1: it was an incredibly tense time, and any moment during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a Russian subcommander who was intent on launching because he thought they were under attack, and it was a political officer on board that basically saved the world. It was a crimson tide kind of a thing where he convinced him not to do right. that. Well, this guy was ready to launch. That would have sparked everything. And there was also a false alarm for the Soviet early missile warning system on September 26, 1983, when the Soviet warning system got a message that a single nuke had been launched heading towards Russia. Well, the commander in charge at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, decided like, well, it would be a massive attack. They're not just going to send one missile. And he counted it as a false alarm, but that could have just, he could have counterattacked sending all of his nukes to the US. That's
0: what he was supposed to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. In and that he in defied that scenario. his he, orders. Right. Yeah. So there's another guy, Split-second decision by a calm, cool, collected, level-headed guy saying like, well, let's just wait this out for a second here before starting World War III and annihilating everybody.
2: And these are just the ones we know about. Exactly.
1: There's so many cases where that could have happened. So you could say like, well, nothing happened in 86, the year of
2: the great accident, quote unquote, but we got very close. And again, may have been close in ways we we have no idea. Right.
1: But their message overall, though, is that if you start to pull your heads out and work together and embrace each other and respect each other,
2: right, you can change this. So a good enough message, and maybe we did because nothing happened in 1986. Right. So at this point, Neptune does a really cool thing that reminds me of all the things that happen in Point Pleasant. <laughs> yeah. he, he asks for a glass of water. Ah. And man, aliens, I guess traveling through time and physical <laughs> space is thirsty work. He asks for a glass of water. And of course, they're at the LA River, so there isn't any water for miles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not water I would drink, certainly. So, yeah.
2: so Orfeo's like, oh, there's an all-night market. <laughs> And again, I just yeah. wish yeah, we I could know, know where I mean, that market was. I mean, I, there's there. a
1: 7-Eleven uh, at uh, Rowena there in Hyperion. But like, okay. so <laughs> I guess you have the all-night market. It's, it's
2: like, like that. that. I guess he, he ran. He literally says, I'll be right back. I'll get yeah. you some water. And he runs. It would be great if he got a slushy. <laughs> <and laughs> slurpee. That would be perfect. He ends up getting like two lemon sodas. Of a brand (laughs) he never (laughs) calls out. That doesn't matter. Some sort of Canada dry product. Knee high. Yeah. And uh, runs back. Guess what? What's your guess? Is Neptune there? Nope. He is not. And Orfeo has been given every indication that this was the last visit. And while he was running to the market, he sort of lost his chance to say goodbye. Right. And at that moment feels he will never see Neptune again. But then he does. (laughs) In November at the bus station.
1: <laughs> the downtown L.A.
2: bus station. And Neptune is fully physical, or in his words, fully objectified.
1: Yeah. He's supposed to be very statuesque, very fit, extremely handsome. So I'm picturing Don Draper from Mad Exactly. Men. How can it, you not? With it's the, a, he's yeah. got the hat and the suit and a briefcase. You're totally Mad men yeah, out. Yeah, uh,
2: Yeah, the briefcase, the whole deal. And he telepathically tells Orfeo, do not approach me. Yeah. Don't let anyone know we know each other. Yeah. Just be, be cool, dude. Let's keep this on the DL. <laughs> right. And he's like, wait, this is very strange. I thought I wasn't going to see you again. I'm I'm here. I believe he was there to pick up uh, friends or relatives. His, at the yeah, his station. family
1: had come in, into town for a vacation. So they're waiting for him. Uh, but Orfeo is, you know, of course, glad to see them, but not as glad as they think he should be. He seems a bit, a bit in a daze.
2: Yeah. He's definitely in a daze. He has seen Neptune. Neptune says, be cool. And that was the end of that encounter. And then a lot of time goes by. Yeah, And that was in November of 52. And then we go all the way to August of 53 when, again, just when you think this whole thing is in his head and it couldn't get any weirder than running <laughs> into an alien at a bus station, Right. he sort of comes up with witnesses. Yeah. Suddenly he's at Lockheed. Now, everyone knows his story by now. He's printed a newsletter, and people are very aware that he's had these encounters. His so, kids have been oh, picked on at school. No,
1: you can say, like, well, wow, he just wanted the publicity. It's like, well, this is no balloon boy dad here. He's not a, that type of guy. He's just a regular, hardworking, middle-class guy. And also, he kind of realizes this happens, but he feels that he has no way out of it. He must deliver this message. And of course, everybody he meets is ribbing him and ridiculing him and not only him, but his wife and his
2: kids at school.
0: Right. So there's no yeah. upside to it. No, no. It's and,
2: tremendous. It's a tremendous amount of people well, thinking you're a nutcase. Um, now, there are some people who come to his lectures at the sure. Los Feliz Clubhouse. Yes. Yeah. And they're very interested. They want to hear what he has to say. And they listen respectfully and some of them really believe it, and some of them share their stories and they walk away. But he's not gaining fame and fortune and girls you know <laughs> yeah, if no, if yeah. anyone thinks you're you're talking about you know meeting aliens <laughs> for girls go to a UFO convention yeah. <laughs> yeah so so now now he's at Lockheed and everyone knows the reputation and it's the night of August 21st 1953 and he starts to get a weird feeling
1: which precedes every one of his visits he gets this tingling sensation altogether not kind of uh, uncomfortable yeah
2: yeah and he puts down his tools and he just starts walking out in this sort of Somnambulistic stagger. And yeah. all of his buddies are like, Angie, hey, Angie, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know why nickname. they talk in that accent, Yeah, but they I do. I, yeah, Well, in yeah. the 50s, they all did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're all kind of Lenny and Squiggy, you know? The Bowery boys, <laughs> yes. So they follow him outside, and there's, what, 12 of them? And they all see a UFO right there, a yeah. big red disc. Right. And they all see it, and they all see it the same way. And they all interpret it the same way. And in the book, he lists every one of their names. Yes. If it was 1955. You could call them up. And go, hey, (laughs) Richard Butterfield. (laughs) I think he's dead now, so I can say his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, they're a bunch of names. They worked at Lockheed. Yeah. You could just go and ask them. And his
1: coworkers read this book when it came out. You'd think that he'd get a firestorm, but I mean, he never really talks about anybody in a negative light. He does mention no. some people that, of course, were ribbing him or were very skeptical, but also some people that really helped him out of the plant and their humanity, which gave him an uplifting sense that we're not all doomed, is that there's some really good souls on this planet.
2: Well, not only that, he's not so alone now. They've exactly. seen it. The ribbing stops. And I, I think Butterfield was one of the more skeptical of his friends right? and also was one of the most traumatized by this UFO sighting, Right, yeah, yes. well, there's
1: one guy who's funny. All he would do is every time he saw him or got him alone, he would joke to him about it. And then after that, he just wouldn't stop talking about it because he knew that right. Angie's like, you've got some insider information. I, I got to know what these are. I got, you got to tell me. And it's like, well, look, that's not the point of this. Yeah. If
2: you're writing a movie about this and I'm not, <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> Good
2: but to that's know. your favorite character. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, the guy who would do nothing but teasing and afterwards is like, oh my God, hey, yeah. hey, hey Angie, we <laughs> go, <laughs> I got to, I got to buy you a cup of coffee. What's I got to find out about deal? this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah You'll love that guy. You'll love him. So I imagine he felt a little bit vindicated. And at the same time, it was sort of like, yeah, I haven't been lying. Yeah. Yeah, It's me. You know, our show
0: here is in a way kind of forensic.
1: Well, I wouldn't be presenting anything we do in a court of law because it ain't going to stand up. But what I think you're getting at is talking about one of our favorite lecture series over at The Great Courses Plus, forensic history, crimes, frauds, and scandals. Brilliant deduction, Monsieur Poirot. (laughs) Sorry. We talked about it before, and I'll say it
0: again. Every subject in that series was right up this show's alley. So we wanted to go back and check a few of them out one more time. And that's another great thing about a subscription to The Great Courses Plus. It's kind of like your own personal digital library that you can access again and again anytime you want. You can stream or download any one of their over 8,000 videos and
1: watch them on any device you have, smartphone tablet, laptop, or TV. All right, so we recently did a story about the American frontier, and we remembered there was a lecture called Criminals of the Wild Wild West in the Forensic History Series. And Professor Murray talks about three legendary characters— Wyatt Earp, Jesse James, and everybody's favorite cowboy cannibal, Alfred Packer. I'm not sure that people have favorite cowboy cannibals. (laughs) Well, he's one of, there's only, there's only a few. There's Boone Helm and then Alfred and then...
0: Well, before we bit into that, we learned a couple of fun facts about Wyatt Earp that we didn't fully know about. Like the family had to move from Illinois to Iowa after Wyatt's dad, who was a local constable, was caught bootlegging whiskey. The dad eventually became a justice of the peace in Missouri, and Wyatt takes over the job of constable from his father. Not long after, though, Wyatt was caught embezzling money from local schools, oh boy. falsifying legal documents, and was charged with horse theft.
1: That's a hanging offense. That is a hanging offense in some places.
0: <laughs> yeah, Earp was arrested but escaped before trial. He then later became a bouncer and a pimp at a brothel. After a raid at yet another brothel, Earp got slapped with a big fine for being a quote old offender. Now I knew why ERP finally moved to Los Angeles when he was in his early sixties, but I didn't know he had gotten hired by the LA Police Department and then eventually turned to his old ways and was even arrested by them. So does it sound like anybody we know?
1: Why it sounds like our man old Henry Plummer. You know, there was a fine line sometimes between lawman and outlaw back then, and sometimes no line at all. Well, if you want to know more about everything from crime to classics to cultures and cooking and pretty much everything else under the sun, you can find it over at The Great Courses Plus, and our listeners can try it out for free for a whole unlimited month. But you got to use our special URL to sign up, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You can start watching immediately, right after listening to this astonishing podcast, of
0: course. Yeah, of course. Just go to the great courses Plus. Dot com slash
1: Legends. Remember, that's TheGreatCoursesPlus.com/slash Legends. You ever watch someone work with their hands? You know, someone who's really good at what they do and fast, like a professional chef chopping or tossing ingredients in a pan. It's kind of mesmerizing,
0: right? So, are you about to tell me you've got professional chef skills now from making Blue Apron?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> but I really am so much faster making meals now, like with all the meals I cook. You were right about Blue Apron just making everything better in the kitchen and not just the dishes you make, but also how well you cook overall. And I actually can do the pan flip. Well, that's not that hard, but I honestly (laughs) find that making
0: Blue Apron does make you a better home chef. And the foolproof thing about it is even if it doesn't come out exactly like the picture on the easy to follow recipe card, the food is still delicious.
1: I know. Well, you really can't go wrong because not only is Blue Apron affordable, sustainable, fresh, and delicious, it's also fun to make. And not only that, it's guaranteed. If you get something in your delivery that isn't right, Blue Apron will make it right. I also like that the meals are more,
0: I don't know, I guess sophisticated. I mean, we've tried other meal services, but the dishes were just kind of ordinary, which is fine if you like ordinary, but I can already make all those old standbys. It's the difference
1: between what you get at a diner and what's on the menu at a trendy new restaurant. Don't get me wrong, I love good old-fashioned diners, but just listen to what's coming up on the Blue Apron menu. Warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons. Spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice or elote style vegetable tostadas
0: with summer squash poblano peppers and cilantro rice you get the picture <laughs> Blue Apron mixes it up so you never get bored you can customize your recipes each week based on your
1: preferences and you only get deliveries when you want them and you can also check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing ah well you'll love how
0: good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't
1: wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Anthony Bourdain ain't got nothing on me. Uh, Yes, he does, Denzel. Hi, I'm Ray,
0: Jesse's mom. This is Jesse. Thank you for listening to Astonishing
1: Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
0: Well, and the other thing I think to consider, is, and it's something that we found in our research, was that in the collection of early contactees, and there's several famous people that are constantly referred to, Right. a fair amount of them have a healthy tinge of charlatanism associated with them. Well, yeah. And yep. Orfeo, in most of the research that you see, he's treated very respectfully, even by Jung, who we'll talk about in a little bit even as he's deconstructing the psychological, you know, psychoanalytical angle of what Orfeo experienced, never at any point does he disrespect Orfeo and nobody else does either. Whereas some people will say, well, George Adamski, these guys were all trying to get an L. Ron Hubbard kind of thing going. And And, they had followers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
2: and I have a theory about that. My theory is that he was one of the most respected and he was taken seriously and considered very sincere because he never provided... Physical evidence, and almost all the other ones did. Yeah. Adamski, all of them had photographs or a piece of metal that didn't dissolve. Right. And the pictures were fairly quickly debunked as fakes and yeah. hoaxes. And the metal from another world was revealed to be a piece of metal from this world. Yeah. Now, there are some who say that they were simply people who had legitimate contact experiences and were so desperate to be believed that they then hoaxed evidence to make people believe in an event that they really did experience, right. but did not, in fact, have photographs of or physical evidence from. Right. And that, I mean, that's sort of a snake eating its own tail. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's going to be really hard to suss out. Were they lying from day one? Were they even aware that they were lying? Were they not lying and then later decided to hoax evidence to back up what is ultimately a true thing?
0: And we've seen stuff like that since doing this show. A lot of times when we will get into the research on a lot of stories, uh, urban legends and tales like that, the feeling that you do get from a lot of these cases is that the initial thing that happened was very real and the person didn't understand it. And then in an effort to cope with the aftermath of revealing that it happened, they invent more circumstances or more cases because they want to be believed. Or in other cases, it seems a little bit like they actually are enjoying the attention that they've never had before. Like some people don't want the attention, but they want people to believe them. Some people maybe didn't care as much about being believed, but were attracted to the attention they were getting. Other people were figuring out, oh, I could make money at this in some way. In a lot of those cases, it still seemed like the first thing that happened was real and they couldn't explain it, to me anyway, but just yeah. based
1: on my
0: experience with the research we've done the past couple of years.
1: Right. But Scott, you pointed out an earlier uh, interesting connection to Albert Ostman's Bigfoot story. Yes. And there are some similarities there and some major differences. And the one is like, well, I think at that point, Albert Ostman didn't really care who believed him. He gave a few interviews out. He knew it was going to be out there and people would see him as crazy. And his story might be one of those instances where he did have a sighting, maybe even a significant one, and maybe some parts of it were made up. The ook-ook and the snuff and the backflips and all the crazy yeah. you know, being carried in the sleeping bag and all that stuff. You don't know. He may have thought that all of it was real, but he seemed kind of genuine. And what I get from the book, look, you can toss all this out the window, and I suggest if you do spend your time with his book. If it starts to bother you, just look at it as science fiction. Just look at it as really interesting fiction in a way and take the story that way. If you want to believe some of it, go right ahead. There's no harm in it. It's a very positive story. But the differences I see between him and Albert is that, or actually the similarity is that there's a genuine sincerity there that comes through in the writing I never met the guy. But the deal is that the message is very sincere. He gave talks and he tried to self-publish a newsletter, the 20th Century Times. Right. All out of his pocket. His wife, Mabel, would always say, like, Orphe, leave this alone. What does it get you? Except more ridicule. Was it do for the family? Look at our kids. You know, they're getting hassled at school. Just drop it. At some point, he says in capital letters, I didn't care. This is my mission. I have to do this. But it's the same story. Oh, God. John Denver. <laughs> it's like yeah. when the Magnificent... Talk about Wally, a movie no one remembers. <laughs> George Burns. Yeah. It's a burden when this is bestowed upon you to tell the world. It's like, well, they're going to make fun of me. And the answer is like, doesn't matter. Come on. You know, yeah. man up. He, as, he, as God did to Aaron, Moses' brother. He's like, I can't. I'm not, I'm not a great public speaker. I, I can't do this. And, and basically the answer was, just do it. Just come on, get out
2: there. Yeah, he genuinely felt compelled. Yeah. Right around that time, I think right after this, he began to have weird sort of memory flashes. And now we hit upon another classic trope of the alien encounter mythology, as we understand it. The episode of missing time. Yes. Seven full days. Yeah,
0: I mean, usually missing time is a couple hours or a few minutes, but seven days.
2: But he was only partially missing just his brain, and I think we've all we've all lost <laughs> we've seven really days. Felt that yeah, way, yeah, yeah. He began to have these memory flashes, and one evening it was raining, so now it's a storm. He should not be going out. If you're afraid of electricity, <laughs> don't go out on the yeah, rain. Yeah, I don't yeah. get that. And don't go to the river. But he goes to the river, the LA River, which at this point is probably you know filled with a half an inch of water, right. and and he sort of relaxes as the rain lets up. He relaxes on the cement banks of the LA River. And lays his head back and just starts thinking about this guy Neptune, this space alien who he hasn't seen in a long time.
1: He's missed him greatly because when this happens, there's a tremendous feeling, indescribable as he says, feeling of just enlightenment and warmth and love. And just communion <laughs> to, to a degree with a Don't higher say
2: communion around Scott. I know I'm he's starting. He's, starting
1: to, he's acting like Orfeo. He's get the cold sweats and he's shivering right I'm now. I'm not reading it. <laughs> he will at one point. He looks forward to this and he misses this guy because this guy is basically revealing what we all want to
2: know: Why are we here? What's our purpose? Right. Where are we going? And when Neptune goes away, he feels really left alone and sort of desolate and and you know in the woods by himself. Well. He lays back and suddenly the memories come back. And he sort of realizes in this moment in August of 53 that from January 12th, 53 to January 19th, he was not all here. (laughs) Now, apparently his physical body was going to work and going home and doing whatever... The physical body of Orfeo Angelucci does in a seven-day period. He was bilocating. But he was not really here. His mind was somewhere else. He spent seven days on an asteroid where he met with Orion and Lyra, a beautiful man and a beautiful woman who may have been the figures on that screen from the yes, first I believe bu- Yes, I, they were. They? I...
1: Yeah, yeah. The first one was... Neptune these names you have to remember as part of the story mythology here as part of the story setup these folks just don't speak English or Italian no. as Orfeo of course could speak Italian as well they have their own language so these names are approximations in his own mind as as he says he gave them names and they didn't seem to really care because what, yes he called it, them. in their world yeah. it's like they don't even really use names everything's kind of telepathic and so you kind of just know people i don't need to call you anything right. you're just you,
2: are you pretty much acknowledges that some element of his own subconscious gave them these rather mythic names. Yes,
1: is in the story, that name Neptune pops into his mind, and the first guy that he spends the most time with, who first visited him in person, you could say, said, yep, yeah, you know what, that's fine. Go with Neptune. That's the first thought that came into your mind. That seems appropriate. Go with that. And Not doesn't really he also
2: imply that Neptune was Orfeo's name in a different incarnation,
0: Later, and that's why he thought of it? In a later meeting, he implies...
1: This is really freaky. I'm not
2: sure you want to go here yet, but basically... <laughs> oh, I want to go there. To me,
0: I read that he was implying that they were the
1: same but, being. No, because I crammed all this last night, staying up very late. Okay. <laughs> not the point. In this meeting that he has later, where he had disappeared for seven days and had traveled to another ethereal dimension of a previous existence of... Proto-Earth, it opens up to a big story, which is very fascinating, but it's a whole other no story. Yeah, there's a whole hours. other, okay, there's a, the whole other <laughs> story. So,
2: no, I'm saying it's
1: it's like, this is going to be another, just yeah. to explain yeah. this You're all. You're still stuck in the years. illusion
2: of time, Scott. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. There is
1: no time in this other place, but there was a shining planet. Okay, here we go. Called Lucifer. And the inhabitants were Luciferians. They were a shining example of all the universe, a very evolved on a higher plane of vibrational existence. But they got cocky. And Astra, who is also Deptune, I'll explain that in a second here, says, yes, basically the stories are true. They got cocky and according to cosmic law, which they all follow, which restricts them from total interaction, completely revealing themselves, but they can interact a little to me, a little like, you know, demons and other spirits. They can interact with you a little, but not fully. Evil projected to its limits is self-destroyed. So, evil unbound, when it just left to multiply upon itself, will ultimately self-destruct because it cannot exist as a state. It'll consume itself.
2: It will consume itself, it like will consume itself
1: in all giving. Because you think about it, like Sodom and Gomorrah and you just go nuts. Well, and you're just like killing everybody. At some point, everybody's going to be dead. I mean, that's a simplified way of thinking about it. So, Lucifer, the, the planet, and the prince of the planet was also named Lucifer. Of course he was. God, yeah, well, that's part of it. He doesn't say he's the devil, per se. This ethereal being, Neptune slash Astra, says that, well, all these people, their britches got too big for them. They got really cocky. They started warring with other peaceful entities in the universe, trying to take over the whole universe. And the great one, the source, the creator said, all right, we're done. We're going to hit the reset button here, and you're going to start at a lower game level. So... You think you saved yourself at level 72 and you're about to go through? The, no, no, no. Get your quarters out, pal, because you're starting at level zero again at a much lower base density. So that's a little bit of the story. So that planet blew up through their own actions. <laughs> right. And, and they're, So anyway, that planet blew up. <laughs> that planet
2: blew up. They're on an asteroid course, in another dimension. But the people there, their souls fell to Earth. I mean, it's impossible not to speculate that Orfeo's subconscious Translated whatever this information was into religious terms. Yes. And as he sort of manufactured the names Neptune and Lyra right. and Orion, came to Lucifer and came to that term, which even if you're not running in and out of church every day, right. is known to most people. Yes. And it it follows the metaphor of yeah. being cast down to a dismal planet
1: it's exactly the metaphor
2: and hoping for a reintegration with the higher cosmic power exactly it's all there right which is what the ethereal
1: beings want they want to bring us welcome us human beings back into the fold of living in
2: a higher state and not wallowing around murdering each other right by the score so and so at this point and he's spending time there and he's eating there and drinking there and it's delicious it's a fabulous
1: place that's why, again i just want a sample i just want a bottle of that whatever the most delicious beverage he's ever had and the meal there was these these delightfully colored pleasant you know deliciously tasting jellied triangles of different shapes uh, and
2: don't they at some point say uh look orfeo just so you know we don't really need to eat We're kind of doing <laughs> yeah, this for you. So yeah, you can, put a smile on your face. Like, we I, I, I can, I, I can compl- stop the Compliment the chef or we can just wrap this up and get yeah. straight to the entertainment. Or if he was like, man, I got to hit the head. Where's right. the bathroom? I gotta, I know. And he's all we ashamed, don't do that here. He, he sort of suddenly realizes how beautiful Lyra is yeah. and oh. is consumed with carnal lust yes. in a moment. And everyone in the room is sort of like, oh, the ugly American.
1: <laughs> Dude, We can. it actually forms as a red and black ugly Aura around him. Everybody's had these golden, beautiful auras that reflect their thoughts I know. and what they're thinking and their communications, like a mood rig. And of course, his turns very carnal, and it's and he's like so
2: ashamed. He well, feels it's sad. about he's to like, having
1: it's like having a reaction in public. Let's it's, just say it's like
2: it's like it's is like when really would, where we're going right now. That's With, it. I didn't write this. That's Hilly what's in the book. Looks like an ashamed dog. What the, <laughs>
1: The ethereal beings, they're very comforting. And he said, "What is? it's all about love, and love is acceptance and understanding. So we get your struggles. Don't be too embarrassed. It's fine. But basically the point here is to show you that you were once a part of this great brotherhood and state of being where there is no pain because what you're experiencing down in the terrible planet and the hell on earth, your lesson now for being such bad boys and girls is that you must attain enlightenment through suffering and turmoil and pain, and that once that happens, it's kind of a cleansing thing. You'll get through that as you evolve. Hopefully your consciousness is raised, you evolve into this beings, and we want you there. We want to bring you in. That's what we're trying to help you. So we're just giving you a sample of what your former life was in another realm and what it could be later on.
2: And a great little detail he brings up right at the end is this language they're speaking. Because he's yeah. like, I understand what they're saying, but they're not speaking English.
1: Right, that's why he say, oh he, yeah, he says, what I'm telling you now is exactly kind of what is in my head, but I can't really translate it into English.
2: Yeah, it's like, uh, these are the thoughts I heard, but just so you know, they weren't speaking English and I don't know what they were speaking. They were speaking another language. I'm sure at one point in my incarnations in the past, I understood it. But when I woke up from all this, I did remember one phrase. Yeah. It was when he appeared on the planet and thought that he had gained weight. And for some reason, Lyra goes, no, you've actually lost weight. <laughs> and wh- why they're talking about his weight, I don't recall. But <laughs> yeah. but he says, I do remember this one little phrase in this foreign, weird space language. And it's something like, un, dos, y pes, lo, And that translates into, no, you have. You have lost weight. So I'm memorizing that because yeah. I think that's a pickup line. Well, hey. That's a good time. Like, you look like you've lost weight. Here's the thing. <laughs> you know? it, I, and, and anyone yeah. who understands it, you know that person is
1: it, it's a compliment. Hey, thank oh, yeah. you. You're looking pretty good yourself. Here's the thing: if this is all true, imagine that. Because that's like me, me, that's not this true. What if it's all true? Well, you've just learned some words from a language of higher
2: beings. exactly. From here, I think the three of us agree the book only gets more overtly religious and biblical.
1: Yeah, I fully agree. Well, yes, biblical in a sense and religious and spiritual in all the senses to me.
2: Well, yes, except that because he's a Westerner, he literally has a vision of Jesus Christ climbing down off the cross and coming and talking to him. I mean, at a certain point, you're just like, well, okay, I see what is happening and how he's translating it. And all this sort of metaphorical strains of the story come together in this tale of despair and possible resurrection. What's interesting to me is that in the concluding chapters— He sort of gets back down to brass tacks. He's like, okay, the saucers. What are the various kinds of saucers you might see? What are the kinds of experiences you might have? And what will they mean if you have them? And one of the most interesting things to me is that he says, look, if you see a saucer of any type, if you see anything strange in the sky that is a UFO, what you'd call a UFO, it's because you have been chosen for the sighting for a particular reason. Yeah. So what he's saying is, you don't find the saucer, the saucer finds <laughs> you. And as I've always believed, this is also about Bigfoot. There is no finding yeah. Bigfoot. Right. Bigfoot finds you. Yeah. When you, there's a moment in your life, you need to see Bigfoot, you'll see him. <laughs> That's a good
1: point. <laughs> right place, right time. One thing I wanted to say this goes into the first revelation with the TV screens when they were explaining to Orfeo, and that would be Lyra, the, the beautiful woman and the very handsome man, Neptune slash Astra. Orfeo's name in the past was Neptune. Yeah, that's what was, I was trying to it, say before oh, you said. Uh, I did I was just steamroll you? Yeah, yeah. No, no. It's that was his name, but he. I nep- got it right here. Orfeo. We have,
0: we, Orfeo shows up with Neptune, and Neptune says to Orfeo, "We have missed you, Neptune." Yes. At which point he says, "But I am not Neptune. There is some mistake. Are you certain? You will recall that Neptune was the name you gave to our brother who first contacted you upon Earth. That name has always held a strange, deep significance for you." perhaps because it was once your own name.
1: Yes, name, but what I want to make clear, and it might be confusing, is that Orfeo was not the handsome extraterrestrial that he first saw. They're two different entities.
0: Yes, yes. yeah, I just want to make And I I misspoke that, I did misspeak that.
1: However, Neptune slash Orfeo was once one of these ethereal beings and inhabitants of the planet Lucifer, But against kind of his own better judgment, he did side with the Luciferians and went against the creator. And so that's where he felt great shame. He's a bug in their presence, a cockroach. He wants to attain this uh, thing. So anyway, two different people just want to make that clear. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So just to wrap up quickly, in that first meeting with Astra and Lyra, the beautiful lady, in the TV set that's above the card. They're explaining what the disks are and how they work. And one thing I wanted to mention here is that they say, basically everything that's happening on Earth for hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years now, is being monitored and recorded by use of these crystal disks. So some of these disks, as tools, are recording transmitting devices. So they're recording... They're all over the place, wherever they need to be. They're recording the life, birth, death of everybody on the planet. And they're tracking us, much as we track animals with tags on their ears to make sure that they're healthy and doing okay. So that's kind of what's happening with them. But they're recording everything. So some of these disks you see, some of them are transportation devices. A lot of them, though, are basically communication devices that go either way. TV, radio, everything. Satellite, radar.
2: So. And we all know that by the 70s, crystals were considered Big key to your spiritual advancement. Right. If you ever go to Sedona, you can, <laughs> you can pick some up. <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting to me was that, you know, like Whitley Strieber, concept he popularized in the book Communion that Scott will not read, <laughs> and I do not blame him. Um, the notion that as an adult, you have an alien encounter, and then later you realize you've been having them your whole life. Right. And Orfeo makes a reference to that idea and that people may be unaware of their relationship to the space people until a, quote, spiritual awakening, unquote, occurs at which they will realize they've been in contact for years, which was one of the first things they said to him. You saw us in 1946. Now it's 1952. We've been following you. You've seen us before. Yeah. And everything they say to him after that implies that there has been an eternity of interactions and that the fact that they're coming to him in his earthly incarnation is of almost no universal significance. <laughs> it just happens to be where they met this time around. Right. So, what do we think of Orfeo Angelucci? Well,
1: well, what do you think of the guy, the book, and the concept? There's a multi-levels here, Scott. I think he was probably a pretty
2: decent guy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> 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 Good night.
0: I I think the idea of it is fascinating. When we went to the bridge yesterday, you got a little excited, didn't you? Well, it was it was, it was cool to be on location that where something has happened and you know, right. for us to have the time and the and the ability to do that which we don't always get to do. There's something about that kind of experience, this visitation and this enlightenment that he seemed to be getting. But also, I feel like when I read his book and when I read all the first chapters, it was very, I was a sickly child. It it was like, it had this very specific sort of Dickensian tone almost and the way that it started. And I just couldn't figure out where he was coming from. And as it progressed, I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. Then when it got to the end and it got to Jesus on the cross and all that, I was like, what is happening here? And then I was like, (laughs) all right, is this happening to him Or is this happening to me? Because, like, I'm not sure what the origin of this story is. I can't tell if it's upstream of him or downstream of him. Explain that thought a little, if you would. Well, I guess what I mean is I'm open to the idea that this stuff is happening to him, but it's not what he thinks it is. Ah. Or, you know, he can't wrap his head around it and he's describing it whatever way he can. But I'm also open to the idea that he's making it all up. Yeah. But maybe not with bad intentions. Right. There's a difference between you know trying to start a cult and get followers and get yeah. people to send you money and you know send your money to God. Here's my address, that kind of thing. <laughs> sure. But it seemed like he was trying to find a package for his messages. One particular thing that I thought was interesting in the book. This was a quote that he said that Neptune made to him: "Communism, Earth's present fundamental enemy." Masks beneath its banner the spearhead of the united forces of evil. Along with good, all men have evil in their hearts to a degree. But some are much more evil than others. Communism is a necessary evil and now exists upon earth as do venomous creatures, famines, blights, tyrannies, cataclysms. All are negative forces which awaken the positive forces of good in man and cause them to act. Thus are they combated understood, and ultimately, their unreality becomes apparent. For evil is always eventually self-destroyed. Which goes back to what you were saying earlier. This quote, to me, is very interesting, and the message behind it is interesting. You have to have the bad to find the good and all of that stuff. But by the same token, we're halfway through McCarthyism here, and what he's telling us is that he's getting a message from a space alien that is essentially what's at the forefront of the American political landscape at that given time and trying to act like it's a message from outer space.
1: So well, I just, an ulterior motive to, to turn political. You. That's a valid point along this line of thinking. But as he says, that's the microcosm. That's what we're down here on Earth, killing each other over political ideas. Look at the times we're in now. Everybody's feuding and fighting. And we're in such turmoil and divisiveness, and, and maybe it's always been like that. It's just more out there in the media in different forms. But that's the muck and the mire that we're down here. If you step back into the microcosm, which is where the Aetherian people and the higher planes of being are, and even astronauts who get off the planet and they see the blue ball that is Earth and they realize how petty and insignificant our problems are when you view it, and it's a real phenomenon physically yes. that happens to astronauts you realize like, that's so silly what you're doing. You're killing each other over ideas. So when you step back, what he's saying is like, yes, maybe it's a message against communism. The bigger message, I believe, is that it's bad. Maybe some people like it for various reasons. People toil under it, but it's kind of a, a the thought killer and the killer of individualism and, and expression in a lot of ways. But we need to step beyond that, beyond these political controlling things and really – Get beyond that because the bigger idea and the better idea and the more that's throughout the universe as cosmic law is the idea of love and acceptance and understanding. And that's where we need to go. What do you think, Rich?
2: Well, again, I look at this in the context of every other story I've ever heard about people contacting exterior intelligences, whether it's through the Ouija board or a seance or a UFO or a near death experience and or how... what's sometimes called friday night at rich's house <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> those are different beer, kinds of spirits my uh, friend craft beer different and spirits. night spirits yeah what are the similarities thematically obviously it's a mistake to think that whatever is communicating even if you accept even if you believe any of this <laughs> that something is communicating to take it on face value and to think that we are getting actual usable information about The coming great accident, or the collapse of the Silver Bridge, or the winner of the Super Bowl. It never works that way. Right. So you've got to step away from that and go, okay, well, it's got nothing to do with that, so what is happening? Are people talking to themselves? Is there something within the human mind that in moments of extreme physical provocation, a near-death experience, or some weird electronic stimulation sprouts this message? automatically, you will get a message of you're part of everything. You are loved, peace, love, acceptance. It's all going to be okay. You are timeless. You're eternal. There is no time. There is no death. And then you wake up from that. Is that what it's always going to be? Because it feels kind of like that's what it always is, mostly, except for the times when it isn't. And every once in a while, it isn't. And those are the dark near-death experiences and maybe some of the weirder alien encounters. But even the dark
1: ones, people come out of it like, well, that was a deep, dark, bad place. I better do something about this. And a lot of times they, they turn their lives around. Because but it's that.
2: really weird because the overwhelming majority of those people are not what you would consider the big sinners. No. You know, these <laughs> well, are, this is not Ebenezer yeah. Scrooge, which, by the way, I feel that a Christmas carol yeah. is basically a near-death experience.
1: Absolutely. It's one of the first uh, ghost stories in that kind of uh, yeah. defending your life where you don't have much chance to defend it at the point. you got to do it when we return you
2: if you're right. lucky enough. But it's everything. It's it's the light. It's the life review. Yeah. It's being told, now you've got to go back and change your ways or now you've got to go back and continue living on Earth and even a view of the future. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, these things are more present in Western culture and Western literature than you could imagine. But when you think about it, you find it everywhere. So then we look at the story of Orfeo, which was happening at the exact same time, the exact same year as maybe four or five or six other guys mostly in Southern California, who are having their own contacts. And this is the kind of thing that simply doesn't happen anymore. So why was it happening then? And were they really just happening because one did it and then six copied? Now you get a very different thing. Now you get Whitley Strieber. You get people, the MIT conference, where people are talking about the horrifying, horrible experience of getting abducted. And people talk about it all the time. The contactees, it was positive. The ab- Oh, I got to read that. Oh, uh, the, yeah. You the, read this in the difference. The, the abductees, difference it thing. was negative. There's this thing written here in a Jerome Clark's UFO Encyclopedia, Volume 1, A through K. And it's a quote from David Jacobs, a big guy in the UFO abduction world. Uh, you can have whatever opinion about him you'd like. But he says something which is kind of funny because it sounds like a George Carlin routine. It's basically the different ways you'll talk about the same sort of alien experience. Right, depending says, on your point of view. There's the abductees of the 80s, but some people just call them experiencers because abductees sounds so negative. And he says they have denied the legitimacy of the word abductee in favor of the more positively charged experiencer. An abductee is a person kidnapped against his will. An experiencer is specially chosen for a very important task. An abductee has unwanted and traumatic medical procedures administered to him. An experiencer is a willing participant in a grand and wonderful plan. An abductee endures reproductive and sexual procedures that are sometimes tantamount to rape. An experiencer helps the aliens create new people for the betterment of aliens and humans alike. Abductees are laboratory animals, but experiencers are united with the aliens to build a better world. So there you go. Uh, which, I love that. Which yeah. one are you? <laughs> <laughs> you get to choose. Only you yeah. know. Well, um, it, I, I prefer it's, yeah. to be a contactee or an experiencer. But it is funny how it got so dark so fast. Thirty years, a blink of the eye in universal terms, and yet suddenly these contacts with the exterior intelligences were really ominous and scary.
1: Well, that's how you can track it as well. And ufologists will will tell you that is that it's changed. The types of craft have changed. Well, I guess technology, that makes sense. That would change throughout our perception of time. The types of contactees, the beautiful Nordic peoples of the 50s that would contact them. And that's and, and what right. I love about Orfeo. Is he the seminal story. Is this it? And everything follows from there. Meeting those
2: beautiful you know, Mr. Neptune yeah. and now Mr. He Orion and <laughs> Mrs. Lyra.
1: Yeah, he didn't, he didn't exactly call them like wunderkind. They were really beautiful uh, Nordic types. He just said they were very idealistically beautiful people. But what they said about themselves is that this doesn't really portray us. This is just for you. So you can kind of image this. It's an essence of who we are. They took on material form a lot just so they could communicate with him in a way that he could accept it. And so, do they look like that? Did he look like that himself? Because when he saw him, I was like, wow, I look I'm really fit. My proportion is on. I'm wearing like a singlet and I look good. Everything looks <laughs> Words great. And it's ideal. never
2: wanted to hear you say first,
1: <laughs> I'm wearing a singlet and I look good. The deal is that he didn't actually. Uh, say that they're Nordic, but you can kind of fit that model in. Totally. And so it has changed. And then now you have different, you know, you have some theorists, experiencers say there's the four main races, you get your reptilian types, your automatons, your gray heads, your big blue blobby things from, you know, communion. Who knows? Now, if you look at Orfeo's explanation given to him is that there are other races that have developed, but his big message at the end was like, the ones that may out to do you harm or, or use you like marionettes they will be self-controlled and curbed by cosmic law. They can maybe observe, they can travel, but they're not down here to create this into a race of automatons.
0: It's funny you should say that because I did want to touch on that because we were teasing about the Prime Directive and also, Forrest, you were talking about the science fiction ideas in the book. I had the cosmic law thing pulled up right here which is something that Neptune said to Orfeo on one of their encounters, cosmic law actively prevents one planet from interfering with the evolution of any other planet. In other words, Orfeo, Earth must work out its own destiny. We will do everything in our power to aid the people of Earth, but we are definitely and greatly limited by cosmic law. So yeah, I would be surprised... If Gene Roddenberry hadn't read this when he was developing Star Trek. Oh, I'm, I'm sure oh,
2: yeah. Was, yeah. somebody
1: told him about it at lunch at the commissary. Well,
2: <laughs> and, and, and again, you know, I'm not personally familiar with the sci-fi magazines of the 30s and the right. 40s. But
1: Fate magazine these
2: ideas may, you know, from astounding stories and startling stories, yeah. all those magazines, some of these ideas may have existed there, probably did. And yeah. there are probably people who can go, oh, Orfeo just got his ideas from the, you know, August 1948 issue of whatever. Right. right. But in that story, they were under the bridge at Fletcher Avenue. Okay. A- a- <laughs> exactly. But, but really, yeah. and if you're young, you're going to say, oh yeah, he stole his stories from a 2,000-year-old book called The Bible, everybody. <laughs> yeah. This is a guy having yeah. these experiences that are heavily influenced by archetypes. Sure. That have existed since men have existed. Yeah. And this is something that is being projected out of him. Jung even said there might be a physical aspect to it.
0: Right. And we didn't touch on that yet, but just briefly, because we're running a little long here, but Carl Jung, who was the father of analytical psychology, wrote in his book, Flying Saucers, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. He wrote extensively about Orfeo, and he suggested that Orfeo was manifesting things that he needed to work out through this. And again, he was not
2: disrespectful of Orfeo, but it's interesting to me. And that's sort of what I was coming back to. Jung has been misquoted and quoted out of context during his lifetime regarding what his beliefs were Uh, regarding the UFOs. Yes. And for a while, it seemed that he thought that they were a real phenomenon. And then he seemed to come out and say, no, they are not at all. This is totally a manifestation of the human unconscious. But ultimately, those who knew him, and if you read his works carefully, the conclusion seems to be that one that I kind of share, which is it is a phenomenon that is primarily psychological, but may also have an exterior physical element to it. So my final thoughts here are one,
1: Rich, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great having you. We loved you. And two, thank you so much for introducing us to this fascinating book. The name has been rattling around there in the cobwebs of your memory, but I never cracked it open. I never thought about it much. I I forgot about it. And then
2: it's been kind of a treat. Well, great. And thank you so much for having me. And I hope it's not the last time, but I kind of hope no, it's, it's the last time, time this week. <laughs> yeah. Let's maybe yeah. give it, give it a rest. And then we'll want to be the Alec
0: Baldwin of astonishing legends. Yes. We're going to bring you back
1: <laughs> year after year. Yeah. Our contact here with you is done. Yeah.
2: Excellent. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> we will not be seeing. Could you go get me a lemon soda?
1: <laughs> I'll be and right back. All just 86. Yeah. And- he tossed those away, by the way. I wanted desperately to go see if they were still there, like in the muck, the bottles of knee high grape or whatever they were, or the lemonade. Well, okay, look, here's my view. And and again, why I thought this was such a fascinating read. And I urge you, if you're into this kind of thing at all, to go pick it up. It's like a buck 60 on Amazon digitally. So, you know, no skin off your nose. It's really fascinating on several levels. One, if you look at it just as a pure science fiction read, if you're into that kind of 50s science fiction stuff, it ages well, I think. I mean, it does have a different, definitely a 50s tone to it because of the writing, it's fun on that level there's a lot of great sci-fi ideas like we said like how spacecraft work and how these saucers function with the kind of the pseudo physics whatever it is how they fly and what their purpose is and just you know his interactions with these ultra terrestrials from another dimension and if you want to look at it as just bunk then i think there is definitely something worthwhile to take away And it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter if you're even spiritual because the message is get out of your day to day, be not of this earth. There's better, bigger things here than what you're looking at on your phone or the problems you have. And yeah, those are real. We all have to live in this real world, but there's something more beautiful and bigger and better out there. And the message has always been the same. It's the only message. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. (laughs) That's gonna wrap up tonight's show on Orfeo Angelucci. Special thanks to Richard Haddam for coming back for this episode. We'll be back next week with part one of a series on the Jersey Devil. If you wanna hear yourself on the show, we're running low on listener segues.
0: So please visit astonishinglegends.com slash listener segues. That's S-E-G-U-E-S and follow
1: the instructions. Special thanks to John Boland.
0: Hi, I'm Lisa. And I give permission to Hi, Astonishing I'm Legends. I'm Melissa to
1: use and my I voice. give permission Hi, to I'm
0: Ray, so Jesse's voice. mom, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use mine and Jesse's voice however they see fit. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound
1: design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the ARC and its lead researcher, Tess Vifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at Astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.